Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the astrological forecast for March of 2021. Joining me today are astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic, and uh, this is episode 293 of the show. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, here is our episode art, cover art for this episode, which is illustrated by our artist Paula Bellomini. Here are the planetary movements for the month of March, and um, here's the calendar for March that we're going to be talking about. All right. How's it going, guys? How are you both doing today? Pretty good. How about you guys? Good. Mercury retrograde um, treated me okay. You, you, Austin? Yeah, well enough. Well enough. No complaints. Can't complain. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I could, but you could complain. Well, you're both actually. We I just can, learned can... uh, having your solar returns basically like right now. Kelly just had hers in the past 24 hours. So happy birthday, Kelly. And yours, Thank Austin, you. is also coming up very soon. Yeah, I'm next week. So um, yeah, exciting. I, um, I had a, I had a fun, um, uh, how should we say, a, a fun feeling old moment yesterday at the barber. Uh, I had a haircut appointment, so I went in, and early on in the conversation, uh, my age came up, and I said, "Oh, I turn forty-two next week." And the the young man who was cutting my hair said, "Oh, uh, that's my dad's age." No, <laughs> nice. <gasps> oh my goodness. I like that, um, Kelly. You have not had any sort of thing like that so far to open up forty-two, have you? No, I haven't. Uh, people have been thinking I've was much older than I am for most of my life. So okay. yeah. So you're resigned to it. Um, I'm, well, I'm accepting. <laughs> you're both yeah. completing your sixth house perfection years and moving into seventh house. So that's something maybe to celebrate a little bit. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking forward to going to the vet less. We've been, I think four or five times this month. I mean, I will be sad that cat watch uh, 2020 and early 2021 is over since your cat <laughs> and other cats have, have appeared very prominently over the past year. So we'll see how uh, your seventh house perfection year goes. Why don't we um, start transitioning into, so we're going to talk about the forecast for March of 2021 first for the first hour, hour and a half of this episode. And then we're going to talk about some miscellaneous topics later on in the episode for those who are joining us for the first time. We're recording this with a live audience of patrons here on what is today? It's Friday, February 26, 2021. We started at probably like 10:50 a.m. in Denver, Colorado. Um, let's jump right into the forecast then, and then we'll talk about other stuff as we go. So, um, the primary things that I wanted to highlight this month um, here's the planetary alignments calendar that we put out each year. Here's the one for March. Primary transits that we're going to talk about is. Uh, on March 3rd, Mars is ingressing into Gemini and leaving the sign of Taurus. On the 13th, we have a new moon in Pisces. On the 15th, we have Mercury going into Pisces. Then the Sun goes into Aries on the 20th, Venus into Aries on the 21st. The Sun-Venus conjunction and the beginning of a new synodic cycle for Venus on the 26th of March. And finally, a full moon in Libra on the 28th. So there's some other stuff sprinkled in there, but um, that we'll we'll touch on. But those are the main highlights for this month. So um, let's start. Let me take a look at the chart for the moment, just to ground us in 
the end of February and the day that we're recording, which is that we're recording this on the day of the full moon on February 26th, which is in Virgo, which is our last lunation of February. But some of that energy is going to kind of take us into the early part of March. Uh, we're also coming off of the Mercury retrograde in Aquarius, and Mercury is still trying to get out of its shadow phase and is completing the conjunction with Jupiter and everything else over the course of the next week or so. Um, and we have the last few degrees of Mars moving through Taurus. And then finally, we're also coming off of and only a degree away from the first exact Saturn Uranus square, which took place in the middle of February. Um, but since that's only like a degree away, we're still very much coming off of that. Uh, did you guys notice anything about some of those transits, like the Saturn Uranus square or the Mercury retrograde over the past few weeks? I'm trying to get my thoughts together. Um, I did notice the very extreme weather that was happening in various parts of the world, partly with the Saturn Uranus square and partly with, you know, five, six planets in Aquarius. So those sort of extreme and or, uh, you know, different type aspects. I know obviously there was the situation in Texas where it got very cold. We had something similar in Belgium where it was colder than it had been in 20 years. And now two weeks later, it's hotter than it ever is. So we're, we're still having some of those uh, extreme temperature fluctuations. What about you yeah, guys? The Texas thing was crazy with the Saturn Uranus square, and a lot of astrologers were commenting on the coinciding of that and just like the Saturn and extremely cold weather, and then Uranus and like the entire power grid going down across the entire state for millions of people. Yeah. And well, with with Uranus, right, disrupting Uranus and Taurus disrupting food, shelter, power necessities, you know, a lot of the, um, the food grid, the the food power grid, also got disrupted uh, by the same set of things. Well, speaking of, and not just the food grid, but also um, there was like major news. Did you guys notice with some Uranus and Taurus stuff about some of the lab-grown meats like hitting new um, targets or like new turning points in terms of um, becoming more widely distributed and better investment? And also, I think. One of the companies um, did a deal with like a bunch of fast food um, businesses in order to start providing those uh, non-meat substitutes to uh, like fast food places like Taco Bell and stuff like that. So it's a little not major major news, but it's just funny in retrospect because that was something we sort of mentioned abstractly as a Uranus and Taurus signification, mm -hmm. but it's actually mm -hmm. we're seeing some of that happen in real time. Yeah, were we there was something about a the the bioreactor like the meat reactor one company was calling the the vats right yeah that was not not as appealing um were there so any the, the bioreactor is now fully operational <laughs> yeah uh well in speaking of bioreactor and, and technology austin you are on a, a blazing new uh internet connection where suddenly even though you're out in like a rural, rural area um, recently got hooked up with sat satellite internet, which I thought was an interesting additional um, sort of technological shift and maybe disruptive technology that's happening right now. Yeah, Elon uh, Elon Musk came to save us. Um, the new, what is it called, Starlink is probably 10 times as fast as our old satellite internet, and it costs like a quarter as much. So we, we're pleased. Yeah, that's going to be... Um, 
first time I have given a shout out and a thanks that I might regret later to Elon Musk, especially if he ends <laughs> up taking over the world at some point in the future. Um, we might regret that. But in the meantime, at least Austin has blazing fast internet. So shout out to him for that. Well, I mean, that's sort of the the pattern of the world, right? Is that yes, it's dystopia, but there are but conveniences abound. Right. So there's a trade-off of whatever, like fast fast internet in exchange for total world domination by small corporation. Uh all right. Any other things? There was a Mercury retrograde as well. I don't know. I think it was just because I'm in a first house Aquarius perfection year, but the first phase of that Mercury retrograde was very much looking back for me and was very like reflective. Um at least I had to like clean my place because there was going to be a yearly inspection by my landlord and Ended up rearranging and, and opening and putting away a bunch of old boxes, and I found like my old Kepler College um, diploma, and so I was reflecting on that and reflecting on the educational path that I ended up deciding to go and some of the choices that were made along the way, and it was very interesting and introspective and stuff. I think because I was in that first house Aquarius perfection year with Mercury going retrograde there, it was also interesting seeing the first of three. Mercury retrogrades in an air sign this year. And it was almost like more Mercury retrograde in some way in terms of communications and social media and stuff. I wondered as a result of that. Yeah, it was very classically Mercury retrograde. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I've been um, you know, I've been somewhat monkish this last month, so I haven't been paying as much attention to the world as I often do. Mm. Yeah, I similar Austin, I was a little bit in the the monastery kind of space, but just this past week I was back co- doing consults with my clients and one thing that came up a lot with this Mercury retrograde for clients like yourself Chris where it's sort of more significant in the context of their natal chart either over planets or first house or perfected house year. They found it uh, a little bit more morose or challenging in terms of keeping their mindset in a good place. And I was really wondering about the co-presence with Saturn having a little bit more of that melancholic tone uh, just in general as part of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially when it was stationing direct in Aquarius. Um, It was stationing in that very close conjunction with Saturn at the time. Let me actually share the chart for right now because you can kind of see that because even though mercury's been direct for what like 5 days right now it's still only at 12 degrees of aquarius conjunct saturn at 8 aquarius yes so there was definitely yeah. that kind of vibe i think yeah that makes sense um okay so those are the things we want to touch on we also are coming out of and i just wanted to illustrate this um from our friend Kyle at archetypalexplorer.com, who sent us this nice um, illustration from his program that shows the exact Saturn-Uranus squares and the sort of intensity of those based on the closeness and how we can see the first of those fell right in the middle of of February, right on February 17th. Um, But we're kind of on the downslope of that, at least as much as we can for a little bit, Coming off of the intensity of that and going into March, where we'll get um, some distance between Saturn and Uranus for a little bit before they start coming back together and form another square exactly in the middle of June. So this month we're kind of on yeah. the downslope from that. 
Yeah, well, and it, it, not only did we have an exact Saturn Uranus, our first exact Saturn Uranus square during February, but we also had almost all of the other visible planets hanging out, you know, in that, um, you know, in that dynamic. And so March, things really disperse and things of uh, the planets have already kind of begun to go their separate directions and, you know, shift priorities. Um, and that's really a theme for March. It's not, um, it's not, uh, how should we say, it's not one note um, in the way that, that February was, right? Uh, when I, when I did pop my head up um, in February, it looked like what, what I saw all over the news was just different versions of the Saturn Uranus square. You know, it was, you know, whether it was the, the farmers uh, protests in India or one of the other hundred things, it was very clear that that was the dynamic, right? This is the, um, you know, a uh, how should we say, a proposed order, um, a um, clear rejection of that order, and then, you know, move from there, right? Or argue from there, depending on the discussion. Yeah, speaking of that, that actually reminds me. So we, you know, the big thing last month, of course, was the um, huge lineup in conjunction of planets in the sign of Aquarius, which was uh, super unique, super rare, and and kind of interesting to see. But it was really fascinating seeing where that stellium fell for different people in their chart, especially in terms of what house placement it was in. Mm. And um, there were just some like classic things. That came up in conversation with different people, depending on what their rising sign was. And I remember talking to one person who was like a family member, and I had been wondering leading up to it how that was going to work out for them because I saw it happening in their tenth house because they have Taurus rising, so their tenth sign or tenth whole sign house is Aquarius. And like completely independently around that time, they called and they said they were starting to go in a new career direction, but that it felt like. A bunch of different pieces or threads from different parts of their life over the past 10 or 20 or 30 years were all suddenly coming together to form a new career path. And I thought that was really funny given, you know, our keyword for that last month, which was the assembly. We were calling it the assembly mm -hmm. of planets in Aquarius. Mm -hmm. And this person was literally describing their experience being like a bunch of threads assembling in that part of their life in terms of career in a very literal manifestation or literal way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there was that. There was another person I talked to who had um, Scorpio rising, and the assembly was in their fourth house, and they ended up like rearranging and reassembling their living situation in their home and like reconfiguring it in a different way, which I thought was additionally like a really funny manifestation of that. Uh, did you guys notice anything else with different people or in your your own charts in terms of how that assembly worked out of of planets in Aquarius based on what house it fell in for different rising signs? Yeah, it's funny that you bring up that fourth house example. Um, I know someone who has it in their fourth, um, and they spent a lot of the last month thinking about home improvement stuff. Home improvement, do, do we do an add-on here? Do we do a tear down there, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and it's, it's interesting the, uh, the, you framing it as interesting because as I said, I've been a little bit monastic the last month. So it's in my, in my eighth, right? So it's unconfigured to the ascendant. It's kind of, you know, off, 
stepping out of the game, right? That's a little bit what especially the 8th and 12th do. Um, and so that is very much the experience. And I have, I, you know, I hadn't reflected on it until you brought it up, but I had some experiences where I was, I don't know, like sitting up in bed for two hours and just going through going through life story stuff, like getting back to the present. And it um, it very much felt like reassembling the story of how I got here. Mm. And for whatever reason, I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't connect it to the literal assembly happening. Um, but I, I had a couple experiences like that that really stood out. But it was, you know, it was, it was a quiet, private reassembly. Mm. I, li I like that. Um, what about you, Kelly? Did you notice anything either personally or in like client charts of people you were seeing? Uh, I, for me, the, the thing that stood out most with clients was some of the keywords to do with that Mercury retro satin combination. Um, but it, it, it's, I've seen a little bit, um, just play out in our personal lives with where it sits in my husband's chart, where it sits in my chart. And it is definitely more of those kind of darker houses for us where it's, it's been a quieter time, but there is a feeling as soon as the sun went into Pisces, there's a sense of like, uh, that shift kicking in of we can step out of this now, we can step forward from here, if you like. That makes sense. Um, all right, great. Well, um, the other thing I wanted to mention that's like a backdrop that we're coming into March with is um, with Mars being at the very tail end of Taurus at this point and very quickly on the 3rd of March shifting into Gemini, that's actually kind of a big deal because it's ending a period that started last summer in late June and early July where Mars had been configured to Saturn by sign by a square starting at that time. and That was the beginning of the Mars retrograde period in Aries where it kept um, going back and forth squaring Saturn exactly from the signs of Aries and uh, Capricorn. Then eventually we had that shift and Saturn moved into Aquarius. Um, but since the beginning of this year, Mars has been moving through Taurus, so they were still configured by square by sign. So I think one of the interesting kind of big shifts at the beginning of March that's worth noting and worth talking about is that we're finally ending that very long period of Mars square Saturn um, at this point, very early in March. And some of that, like we remember, of course, last March. A lot of the lockdowns happened under the March, the, the Mars Saturn conjunction. And then there was a little bit of easing up of that when Mars left that um, conjunction by sign with Saturn. But then once Mars went in on, I think, like July 1st of last year, once it went into uh, Aries and Saturn retrograded back into Capricorn, we again started seeing some of those lockdowns across the world as it became clear that the pandemic wasn't over and there was still this sense of like restriction on people's movement and i'm i'm wondering and hoping um with the covid numbers recently going down if some of that um won't let up again a little bit in terms of you know freedom of movement and restrictions and lockdowns and things like that i did a search today for like the us covid numbers and they've been dropping um pretty rapidly over the past few weeks even though it's still very high and it's basically as high as it was at its highest point last summer here in the US where it's at right now. So obviously we're not out of the woods at all, but with the vaccine numbers, vaccination numbers going up and some of the 
COVID numbers dropping. It's somewhat promising. Yeah, it's good. And that's, um, you know, you make a good point there with the Mars Saturn, you know, we've had Mars either conjunct or square Saturn for, I don't know, let's see, nine of the last 12 months, maybe. Yeah, nine of the last 12 months, maybe a little bit more. Um, and that's unusual. You know, Mars Saturn configurations, um, on average, are a quarter of the time. Right, they're not um, three quarters of the time, yes. and you know, although there are you know <clears throat> plenty of potentially productive things that happen with Mars and Saturn in a nativity in the sky in general. When it's uh, when we're looking at astrology to describe the condition of a time period, um, you know, uh, all, all manner of gnarly things are under the combined auspices of Mars and Saturn, um, and so it was you know it was one of the reasons we were a bit leery of 2020 when we looked at it back in 2019 is we're like, oh, it's Mars and Saturn the entire time. Um, and so we're now moved out of that cycle, right? Saturn um, will do dastardly deeds as will Mars, but separately. Um, you know, in a sense, we're breaking up the um, like the villain crossover series where all the villains work together to smash the people. Yeah, I like that. Um, and the ending of a chapter. And um, one of the things that's weird about that here, I'm just animating the chart. We see Mars go into Taurus in January, make its way through Taurus in February, and then finally get out of Taurus and move into Gemini by March 3rd and 4th. And now we have some pretty flowing configurations between Mars and Gemini and Saturn and Jupiter and Aquarius, which are now configured by Trine. And that's a much different energy than we've been dealing with for most of the past 12 months, basically, at this point. Yeah, it has a little yeah. bit more of a uh like a constructive, productive, I don't want to get necessarily too, too positive, but it's certainly less um less barriers, less frustration. And just in general, one of the words that I keep coming back to when I think about March astrologically as a whole is the idea of movement because Mars is leaving mm -hmm. a fixed sign and going into a mutable sign. Mercury is going to do the same thing mid-month. And the other thing just in a slightly shorter time with Mars and, and to the same extent Mercury, they've both been in the signs, uh, you know, at the start of March, we've got Mars and Taurus, Mercury and Aquarius. They've both been in those signs since the second week of January. So unusually, we've had longer, uh, Mercury's been in Aquarius for a couple of months because of the retrograde. Mars was in Taurus for a little bit longer than usual because it's still picking up pace post-retrograde. So March is really the first month where we're getting some things that have been in the one sort of holding pattern since the start of the year, they're actually going to change this month. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, well, that's that's really good news, and it's kind of paving the way for that shift we noted in our year-ahead forecast when Jupiter's going to dip into Pisces starting in May. Um, so I wonder if it's not clearing the way for that and, and sort of a ramping up or preparation for that period that we were hoping would also indicate a shift um, towards things being a little bit more open or a little lighter than they have been for the past year, year and a half. And certainly more mobile, yeah. you know, as I believe we discussed last month, um, about this month, things are as, as March opens, we've already got the sun and Venus in Pisces, which is a mutable sign. 
And then as Chris just said, we have Mars uh, on the third or fourth moving into Gemini, which is a mutable sign. Um, and so that is um, that stands in stark contrast to the everything fixed uh, that we had for the last month, right? Mutable is, you know, uh, mutable is adaptive, right? It's mobile. Um, it's willing to change things up. Um, it, it's, you know, fixed is sort of the drama of can we make this one thing happen or not? Um, whereas mutable is like, well, if we can't make it happen, what can we do instead? Or maybe if we change this, you know, mutable, um, mutable uh, connects to, you know, the, that, the tech term of a, a company doing a pivot, right? Where you're like, oh, we've got something and it doesn't do this great. And that's what we hope for, but it can do this. So why not this? This has value. Um, and so there's a little, you know, there, there, there's, um, there's a dexterity to mutable, uh, to mutableness um, that we're seeing through a lot of this month. Yeah, which is going to be, I think, experienced relatively positively, having been in such a heavy fixed energy for so long and having such an otherwise tense transit of Mars squaring Saturn uh, by sign for the past six or eight months or, or whatever it's been at this point. Um, yeah, so the, you know, sometimes mutable signs get a bad rap for being flaky, but uh, the positive side of that is that um, not that mutability, but that um, what you're just describing in terms of uh, I'm not thinking of the word. I'm blanking on the word. What's the word? Is like um, Kelly. Help. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's so I think I know it's um, they do get mutable signs get a bad rep for being flaky and for being scattered. And I think that's the caution with Mars coming into Gemini. But, but they, the they're adaptable. Yeah. They're adaptable. They're, they're that's adaptable. It. Yeah. So they can multitask or they can juggle things. Austin used the word pivot. You know, a mutable planet can go from doing, they can do five things in a day rather than just one thing deeply. So, you know, it, it, it has value in different scenarios, I guess, to be so adaptable. Yeah, there's something to be said for adaptability um, that's sometimes, you know, very undervalued sometimes in society, even though you would think it, it has its place. But sometimes the ability to be adaptable is not given as much um, credit, maybe, as it deserves. Yeah. Well, as yeah. a highly mutable chart, I completely agree. Right, we t we totally concur. Uh, but you know, I am married to someone who's very fixed in their chart, and Chris, I know you weigh more to the fixed, and right. there is great value in that steadfastness. Although, you know, my husband sometimes frustrates me for being stubborn, etc. So there's pros and cons to all all kinds, basically. Yes. Uh, all yeah. right, well, and. Go ahead, Austin. Well, so let's let yeah, let's do let's uh, talk a little bit more about two of our mutable planets, which are the Sun and Venus. And so, as the month begins, we have Sun and Venus in Pisces, and Venus is uh, considered to be exalted in Pisces to give out lots of um, you know to to provide abundantly for all of the pleasant core significations. But um, Venus is invisible for this entire time. Right, so Venus mm. is so close to the sun that we won't be able to see uh, see see it rise or set, right? And so we have this is an interesting combination of characteristics. You know, usually if a planet, especially Venus, is for a while exalted, we can just expect lots of 
you know, uh, of the uh, of the how should we say the social lubrication um, and general joy in life, as well as um, you know the cash and prizes and luxuries that Venus brings to characterize that time. But a combust planet um, has different rules, and so you know there there's a thing here. So one of the <clears throat> Yeah. So, uh, excuse me, a combust planet is a planet that we can't see. And so metaphorically, it's burnt by the sun. Um, and this is said in some texts and in some contexts to to ruin or devastate the uh, significations of the planet. Um, it certainly keeps them hidden, right? But the there is a, a rule which I believe you use, Chris. I certainly use probably you too, Kelly. That if a planet is very strong in a sign, such as in its exaltation or rulership, as Venus is, um, that it's able to resist the uh, the baleful rays of the sun. The image is of uh, you know I believe a the planet holding up a parasol or having a little canopy uh, to protect itself from the the far too close solar rays. Would it, do you all use that rule? And if so, how do you interpret it? Yeah, except here it's like Venus in her exaltation. So it's more like, you know, one of those old uh, from the Roman Empire, like somebody that's being um, carried around in like a chariot or something like that because of the, the sense of exaltation and having protection as well as prestige from that. Yeah, Palanquin, thank you. And so, is that what it's called? Do you see it just as a? Do you see that as a complete negation of the combustion, uh, or a modification of it? Um, um, yeah, I mean, so I, what I, I see that as a as a mitigating factor that mitigates any negative things that are associated with it, and instead, it's just something that becomes internalized more. Um, which is another interpretation of planets under the beams: is that the significations, instead of being outside and visible and external, become inside and hidden and internal and part of that is also that venus is finishing the last phase of her synodic cycle and she's getting ready to conjoin the sun and begin a new cycle um later in the month with the sun a new like year and a half cycle and closing down another year and a half cycle that started in early 2020 i believe and that is part of what's tied in with that in terms of being under the beams and entering into eventually the heart of the sun Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I do see the way that I see it is that the the quality of the planet's work is undamaged, but if you're expecting anything that requires visibility, um, mm. that those significations are damaged because even if Venus is doing great work behind the scenes, it's still behind the scenes. The planet has no visible light, and so anything, you know, magically or electionally or whatever that would, um, that has visibility um, as as part of its goal um, or its definition of success um, would be damaged. But if it's, you know, quiet, privately, privately pleasant, um, then I would say, you know, it's a thumbs up. Kelly, how, do you work with this rule? Yeah, yeah. It's. I think you've just probably given a slightly more eloquent expression of it, Austin. But I think I'm a little bit more on that take where I 
totally see, you know, Venus in Pisces has the gifts of the exaltation, but there is still the invisibility factor that that is that needs to be taken into account, if you like. So I guess my take is it's better for uh, Venus combust the sun to be in Pisces or Taurus or Libra, but there is still some qualities of hiddenness not being seen or something maybe being a bit obscured uh, coming through. Because we, we physically can't see it. So I, it's not the same as if Venus was in Pisces without that proximity to the sun, I guess. Right, right. Right. So it sounds like we're pretty much in agreement. Yeah. We're all on the same page. So let me show the time frame for that conjunction because um, there's kind of like a high point for that, which is the new moon in Pisces when Venus is is very closely conjunct Neptune and closely conjunct the new moon later this month around the middle of March, around the 13th. But um, that synodic cycle completes and Venus conjoins the sun at about five degrees of Aries. It looks like around March 25th. So that's the end of one 1.6-year cycle and the beginning of a new one. So some, some endings and some beginnings with respect to Venus. Uh, but that actually takes place in the sign of Aries instead of Pisces, even though Venus spends most of the month in Pisces. Yes. Yeah. So that's the answer. So Venus has two conjunction, two different flavors of conjunction with the sun, right? One is the retrograde conjunction, which occurs in the middle of the Venus retrograde. We had the last one of those was June of 2020. And so this is the, the next installment. Um, and this is the direct conjunction. Um, and so for this one, often called the superior conjunction, not because it's better, <laughs> but in the literally further away, um, we're going to have Venus on the far side of the sun. So this uh, the the Venus Sun conjunction while Venus is direct is Venus as far away from Earth as possible, whereas the retro one has Venus between the Sun and the Earth. Kelly, how do you how do you work with the difference, like the the very stark astronomical difference between those, um, even though they they can look similar at first glance in a chart. Yeah, I think the the inferior conjunction, which is, I mean, I sort of almost switch that to an interior where there's a little bit more yeah. of an internal, uh, whether that is uh, less uh, seen or less noticed or whether it's just describing things that are a little bit more of an intimate nature versus the superior mm -hmm. conjunction, which we might think of external or even kind of like on an extroverted spectrum, if you like. So a little bit more outward or seen, perhaps topics that are yeah, that makes sense. Kind of away rather than really intimate. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, so a lot of that's like the overview of the major transits this month. Should we start back at the beginning and start doing a, a sort of week by week breakdown? Sure, sure. I've got some more to say about Venus and the Sun, but we can get there. Okay. Uh, so let me share the chart again for those watching the video version, and let's back up to the first week of March. March 1st opens up with um, Mars at 28 degrees of Taurus, so it, it makes that shift, as I said, on the 3rd, uh, but we get a few more days of Mars and Taurus right at the top of the month. Uh, we have Mercury, Jupiter, and Saturn lined up in a conjunction at the top of the month in Aquarius and Venus and the Sun forming their conjunction in Pisces with Neptune. Um, 
Let's see. And then we get the same day, one of the things I noticed on the the third or the fourth, right around the same time that Mars switches mm. into Gemini, we get the exact, the final Mercury-Jupiter conjunction, the third and last of three, um, which is kind of an auspicious conjunction. And it's interesting seeing that shift happen simultaneously of Mars going into the domicile of Mercury and therefore Mars um, taking on some of the significations of Mercury for the next month or two, um, but a sort of auspicious Mercury-Jupiter conjunction happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I get to uh, pack all that into my solar return chart. Please. You do. Nice. You do. Uh, I think that well, Mercury-Jupiter is its definitely uh, an aspect that can bring a positive development or a welcome piece of news or progress, I think. Uh, it is the third in a sequence of three because we've had Mercury conjunct Jupiter over the last couple of months as Mercury's gone through its retrograde. But I, I look forward to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's the that um, that co-presence between Mercury and Jupiter um, lasts until the middle of the month, and it's you know it's a it's a quite good thing. It's especially good for Mercury mm. um, because it's really answers to questions, right? Or the right plan, the right trajectory through difficult terrain. Um, and Chris, I love that you pointed out that um, Mars in Gemini is ruled by Mercury. And so we'll actually be benefiting significantly from that that really like hopeful but clear-eyed Mercury-Jupiter conjunction, um, and that it's really going to change. Um, it's really going to change the uh, how should we say the the efficacy um, of Mars and Gemini once Mercury shifts into Pisces mid-month. Um, so we really the I would say until Mercury shifts into Pisces, um, we're going to get. The how should we say the 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 better portion of Mars and Gemini's action, right? Mars and Gemini is sometimes manic, but can be manically productive. But as I believe you said earlier, Kelly, can easily be scattered or dispersed, mm -hmm. right? Too many things, uh, like start, you know, doing a little work on thirty things, getting nothing done, um, the mind getting overwhelmed, getting anxious, and you know that that sort of that sort of spin, um, spinning up and getting scattered, that centrifugal sort of state. Um, and I would be, um, I, I would be looking for that later in the month. But the um, the that first portion of of Mars and Gemini should be pretty useful, I think. Yeah, the feeling that I have with Mars going into Gemini and then the Mercury Jupiter conjunction, which is both ruling and happening around the same time, it, it's like a lot of things get unlocked or start happening quite quickly, and there's a sense of mm -hmm. that being that. Okay, great. We've now got six things on the go and we're all perhaps fresh or rested and off we go, but we get a couple of weeks into it and the wheels start to fall off. But we've got a couple of weeks of of getting things done or moving things forward first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a loss of focus when Mercury moves into Pisces. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there, there's always a bit of a lack, loss of uh, focus when Mercury moves into Pisces. <laughs> totally. Um, so that can be fun, but in terms of mercury's job as directing mars yeah um that's going to mean that the the effort mars's efforts are going to be less efficacious um with mercury the you know the sort of uh what do you what do you call the person like 
uh, who's like calling in, like the who's calling in whatever to uh, whatever the um, command central, right? Yes. Mercury as the dispatcher is going to, you know, maybe um, maybe have one drink too many, <laughs> maybe, show up to maybe, work unprepared. Uh, yeah, exactly, and so that'll affect the action of Mars, who's out there on the ground. Yeah. The other thing when Mercury shifts into Pisces about that is that Mercury will eventually catch up for its third square with Mars, right around 11 degrees of Pisces, squaring Mars at 11 degrees of Gemini, and that like completes around the 23rd and 24th of the month. So that's kind of a tense, um, somewhat verbally combative energy. And we, due to the retrograde, we already had two uh, squares like that already, I think, this year. So this is completing the third one, but in different signs from where it was before. Yeah, and that's one of our themes for 2021 is an excess of Mercury-Mars squares, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. Right. It is. So backing up, one thing I, I don't like about, um, I'm otherwise on board with Mars leaving Taurus, but the only um, and moving into Gemini, the only thing I don't like is that as soon as Mars shifts into Gemini, we stop being able to do some of these awesome Gemini rising elections with day charts where Mercury has stationed direct and it's applying to that conjunction with Jupiter. Uh, so, as a result of that, uh, Lisa and I wanted to highlight our main electional chart of the month actually takes place right away at the top of the month on March 1st at approximately 10.30 in the morning local time. So This is our electional chart for the month. You'll have about, let's say, eight degrees of Gemini rising or so, or basically adjust your the chart or adjust the time in your location until you have about eight degrees of Gemini rising. We made it so that this time puts Mercury and Jupiter right on the midheaven here in Denver, and if you can, try to adjust things so that you have something like that in your location if you can. Otherwise, just make the degree of the Ascendant trining one of the Aquarius planets, either Saturn at 8 Aquarius, Mercury at 14 Aquarius, or Jupiter at 16 Aquarius. So This is a, a chart with Mercury ruling the Ascendant, and it's placed in Aquarius in the ninth whole sign house, conjunct the degree of the Midheaven, and applying to a conjunction with Jupiter in a day chart um, in the ninth. Saturn is also there, but Mercury is separating from Saturn, so that's not a big problem um, because in electional astrology, separating aspects usually indicate the past and applying aspects indicate the future. Um, Mars is relatively well tucked away in the 12th whole sign house, and the Moon is in Libra in the 5th whole sign house at around 13 degrees of Libra applying to a nice trine with Mercury and then a nice trine with Jupiter. Uh, then finally also we have Venus and the Sun, Venus exalted in the 10th whole sign house in Pisces. So This is our best electional chart for the month, and it's similar to the electional chart we highlighted last month for late February after Mercury stationed direct um, in that it's very much focused, especially on ninth house matters, because it puts the ruler of the ascendant in the ninth house and applying to a conjunction with Jupiter in the ninth whole sign house. Although, if you can get it there on the degree of the midheaven, then that'll import some tenth house significations in as well at the same time. So, it would be good for like learning and education or um, philosophical or sort of religious studies or other things related to that. 
the Ninth House is also uh, a good place for publishing and either publishing a book or starting a book uh, or trying to mm-hmm. communicate some teaching or some knowledge or some learning that you have. Um, it's not a bad seventh house chart since Jupiter is the ruler of both the seventh house and the tenth whole sign house, and Mercury, the ruler of the ascendant, is applying to a conjunction with Jupiter. Um, what other topics would you guys use a chart like this for that's very much focused on uh, ninth house matters? I mean, definitely the study, teaching, wisdom side of things, whether it was reading a book on philosophy or listening to a lecture or training on something in the the wisdom, metaphysical kind of learning space. I think to me, it's like the brain is is getting some good information or sharing some good uh, insight. What about you, Austin? Yeah, I I think you both covered the majority of them one thing i would i would just point out is that that mercury jupiter conjunction on the midheaven those are the rulers of the first and seventh houses and so right. if you want to bring people into accord you want to bring me first house you seventh house into accord um that's right in there and that could be um that could be like business stuff. That could be legal stuff. That could be, you know, making, you know, uh, how should we say, uh, officiating a relationship. Yeah, yeah, doing a deal, coming to an agreement. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Jupiter is also the ruler of the 10th house. So it's not bad for career matters either or things having to do with public reputation. And Venus, uh, exalted in Pisces in the 10th, also gives a nice boost. Um, the downside of the, of the, chart the problematic area or more problematic area is Mars in the 12th house which can be problematic for uh, enemies or people that work at cross purposes to you or sometimes needing to be more careful about undermining yourself or traditionally self undoing is one of the the 12th house significations so otherwise that is our um, chart for the month and that is one of I think four electional charts that Lisa and I found for the Auspicious Elections podcast this month, which is available to patrons through our page on Patreon. So you can sign up uh, for more information about that or find more information on our page on Patreon. I, 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 one of the things that's a little bit cheeky and someone's mentioned this in the chat, so I'm just going to throw it in there. I, it's such a nice chart. I think you should start teaching a class then. And I realize that's actually about when I'm about, I will start teaching my next class. Not nice. not necessarily the time of day um, where I'll be, but where my students from North America will be attending, and with that aspect, the mo- the moon aspect. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that too. Um, I'm actually I'm going to be uh, raising the prices on my courses and trying to start doing more live Q and A webinars with my Hellenistic course in particular. Um, because I keep doing that classic thing. Do you guys remember years ago? <laughs> You all sat me down at like a Norwalk, like actually many years ago now, and we're like, uh, Chris, you're really underpricing pretty much your consultations and everything you're offering, and you need to raise your prices. And it was like an intervention almost. I, I do recall this, and it was many years ago. Yeah, this is an ongoing issue for me, which is underpricing my things and also wanting to make it more keep things accessible to people, which is a really important thing. Um, but uh, given how much I keep adding to my courses and stuff, mm. I'm finally going to raise my prices a little bit again this month. So I want to give people a heads up if they've been meaning to sign up 
and putting it off that this would be a good time to just in order to get in for the lower price. Um, I'm going to continue to offer um, scholarships and some discounts uh, to different groups because I want to make sure things are still accessible to people who are in need or who you know want to access some of those teachings. But um, yeah, I think I need to keep you know doing that in order to keep up where 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 the field is and where everything else is at. Yeah, you um, was it you standing still is not neutral when you're on a moving train, something like that. Yes. Yes. Something like that. So anyway, having the rule of the ascendant in the ninth whole sign house reminded me that in terms of starting a new course of study um, under a good electional chart. So that is the beginning of the month and Mars ingressing into Gemini. Um, is there anything else in the first week of the month before we move on? So uh, the, the Mercury no, Jupiter I mean, conjunction. Yeah, I mean, we just come. We the first part of March is as we end February, right? We've got Mercury Jupiter conjunction, and we have uh, Sun Venus. <clears throat> then we get that Mars ingress, and then I believe our, the next thing on our agenda is the is the new Moon, isn't it? Yeah, which is a little ways out. It's almost the middle of the month. Uh, in what in a two day period that I'm affectionately calling the Pisces puddle because we'll have <laughs> the Moon, Venus, Neptune uh, all traveling through Pisces and getting together, and then of course we have the new Moon at 23 Pisces. Yeah, 23 Pisces. Um, Venus is really close to the conjunction conjunction with Neptune at that point. Venus is at about late 19, and Neptune is at 20. So it's interesting that that's almost a simultaneous happening in terms of that conjunction. And both of those planets are themselves already pretty close to a conjunction with the Sun and the Moon when they go exact at 23 degrees of Pisces on, it looks like early on March 13th. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. You know, if we compare that to, I don't know, the the new moons of the last year, <laughs> I think that that is the most pleasant by far. Mm-hmm. You know, we it, it's not. I, I wouldn't say the most productive. Mm -mm. No, no. <laughs> but um, day for rest and um, relaxation. Yeah, there, there's a like, there's a, a depth of relaxation there, um, and you know, to speak to Pisces mutability, there's the mutability and adaptability on on the surface. You know, sort of inaction out there in the world. But then, you know, there, with Pisces, um, there's also, how should we say, the a sort of um, psychic adaptability where, you know, I, I find with when planets are in Pisces, there's um, there's a call, you know, a call to the deeps to um, sort of adapt to change shape in relationship to the the where things have come to. There's uh, it's what it's mutable water, so there's like a. a uh, a, a mutable um, dream, emotional adapting to where we have come to, right? And there are, you know, life is full of pleasures and pains, but half of those pains are a result of us having a different set of expectations mm. um, or demands than what the present is. There's a friction between us and and the period of life we're in. And part of that that deeper Pisces work is 
um, you know, making complementary shapes out of the point uh, in the uh, the point in our lives we're at and um, ourselves. So they, you know, form a nice form a nice circle rather than you know a sort of set of conflicting, uh, contrasting hard angles. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So it's sort of it's feeling into the mood or the flow or almost a feedback loop around the hope or the dream or the expectation versus what is and trying to make connections or have movement. Um, so there's a sense of, I don't know, it, it's definitely more circular and flowy and like the infinity symbol rather than, you know, hexagons and squares and rectangles. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Not, not terribly rectilinear. Um, it feels like, I should say, it feels like the perfect time to consult the Yijing, right? Be like, what, what is the, what are, what is the dynamic of things and what are, and then what dynamic, what new dynamic is emerging out of that? And then what is the, you know, what, what is the shape? What, what is the Tao of whatever this is of, of that moment? What is the, the best possible relationship to this changing set of times? Hmm. Yeah. One of the um, things that I wanted to point out about this lunation that I think is important and can help situate it within the overall context of this year and where people are at versus where we're headed is that we're at the set of lunations in the mutable signs in Virgo and Pisces um, specifically is the halfway point between eclipses this year because the nodes are right in the middle of Sagittarius and Gemini. So um, here's another uh, illustration from Kyle from Archetypal Explorer that he sent me over just showing how in terms of the lunations right now, we are midway between the eclipses that took place towards the end of last year in late November and early December and the next set of eclipses that are coming up in a few months in what the May-June timeframe. So I hope I think that's useful to sort of illustrate because I, f- I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I feel like when you reach this point that's sort of midway between eclipses, that it's almost like a turning point in and of itself with respect to some of the eclipse energies that began in certain parts of your charts three months earlier and in terms of where it's headed uh, three months from now when the next set of eclipses take place in the same um, quadruplicity or the same set of four signs basically. Do you guys see any connection between those two, or how do you how do you take that? Um, it it does do that if if this particular if this cycle of eclipses is really important for a a person, then noting that midpoint is really important. Um, if it's not a terribly impactful set of eclipses, then um, other other factors are likely to shine brighter. Yeah. One, I just want to say on the uh, with the graphic that you showed, I really like um, the the way that it imaged the declination of the moon in right. those being yeah, either below the sun or you know northernly or southernly from the sun um, because that's the reason there's not an eclipse every new and full moon is that the moon's a little high or a little low in the sky and so this is a this is a really nice visualization of that and you see that we have the, the 
in, in a sense, the maximum distance with the new and full moons at that that midpoint, where the full moon is way too high, you know, way above the sun, um, and then the new moons are way below the sun. Yeah, and part of that, how you can visualize that just looking at a chart, is this new moon is going to take place at 23 degrees of Pisces. So that's in one of the signs that's squaring the nodes, um, because mm-hmm. the nodes are that point where the path of the moon basically intersects the path of the sun, and that's what allows for eclipses when the bodies of the two move across each other. So, um, yeah, thir- thoroughly, thoroughly chill new moon. Yeah, I was going to say that to something you said earlier, Austin, when you're talking about the the sort of divinatory or divination qualities of this new moon, it definitely feels like slowing down. You know, if you're going to feel or intuit or divine something, you have to be not rushing and not thinking, I've got to do this quickly. You mm-hmm. kind of have to, there's a spaciousness to this, which is kind of needed to allow that um, that messaging to kind of pop up or for you to be still enough within yourself to interact with those subtle sensory and that subtle sort of perception. Yeah, yeah, I would say to to feel motion, you have to be going slower than what's moving. If you're mm-hmm. moving faster than something, you won't you won't notice it. Mm-mm. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right, is there anything else about this new moon in the middle of the month, um, or anything else that we need to mention? It's like there's not a lot of close configurations to it. It's kind of a chill lunation, as you said, Austin, um, with that Neptune energy and that exalted Venus all being um, configured there. Hmm. Hmm. All right. The, the puddle. The yes. Pisces puddle. Um, Very puddle. That, that sounds good. Let me see. Um, I did have the puddle one. of prophecy. That's the extra word. I'm like, this thing needs an extra um, alliteration. <laughs> so always bringing the great words, Austin. <laughs> That's fantastic. You. Well, you, you began it with puddle, which was exactly the right location. Oh, that's fantastic. So speaking of puddles, uh, Mercury goes into... Pisces a couple days later on March 15th, it looks like. Yes. Yeah. If anybody wants to spill a cup of coffee on their laptop, um, there's some really good elections for that once Mercury's in Pisces and Square Mars. Yeah, or even conjunct Neptune. There's a couple, you've got a couple of options. <laughs> yeah. It's really um yeah, if you want to ruin any of your electronics with water, it's um opportunities abound. Oh gosh! Mm. Or write like a poem or a very abstract piece of art. Oh gosh! And if you have such things in your natal chart, this is something that you deal with all the time anyway. I'm just remembering about six weeks ago, I literally put, knocked a glass of water over my keyboard, and just that was it. <sighs> Madness. Uh, yeah, you know, some there there is the. You know, the, the there there's the deep interpretation, which is valid. Then there is the extremely literal, shallow interpretation, which is also valid. Yes, equally valid. So it's March fifteen, is it, Chris? That Mercury moves in literally on the middle of the month. Yeah, March fifteen, yeah, like right after, and right after the new moon. 
And yeah. Mercury is moving really fast at this point. So it's actually going to cruise through Pisces. Very quickly. Um, two and a half weeks or something. Yeah. So that it, it almost gets out by the end of the month, but not quite. But we do get a Mercury-Neptune conjunction on March 29th, uh, right around the same time as the Sun-Venus conjunction, or a little bit, little bit after. Right, so that you know, between the new moon and Mercury's ingress into Pisces, um, we have a pretty reasonable dividing line between the first and second half of the month in terms mm -hmm. of dynamics. And then, how long is it until Venus moves into Aries? It's not too long after that, is it? The twenty-first, another week. Okay, so it's the twenty-first, right? Yeah. So it is a little bit later. So you know, I would say during the middle third of the month, we have a variety of shifts. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that might be worth talking about here is um because with the the two Neptune conjunctions, first with Venus and then with Mercury, you know, one of the um significations of Venus, of Neptune in general is just a lack of boundaries and a dropping of boundaries. And with Venus Neptune conjunctions, that's more of a straightforward thing in terms of relationships and dropping relational boundaries. Whereas um, with Mercury Neptune, um, the boundaries more have to do with like the the mind or like the imagination or what are some of your keywords for let's say your positive keywords for Mercury Neptune conjunctions? Poetry and music. Poetry, music, inspiration, like feeling deeply yeah. inspired, especially in in Pisces in a water sign. So something that. Maybe touches you or on an emotional level at some emotional core level, even if it's not an intellectual type thing. It's like a conveying a feeling. Oh, it's absolutely talking about feelings. It's feeling all the feelings. Maybe um, this isn't a positive word, but you know, sometimes getting overwhelmed by that and looking for ways to move through emotion that aren't logical or verbal. And that's where the poetry and the music comes in. So, like key words would be like imagination, maybe inspiration and intuition. And it's sort of inspiration without necessarily having the action, but it is sort of feeling full or flooded with with things, if you like. Um, they would be some of the more positive sides, but there's a lot of not positive sides, I think. Or there's there's things to watch out for that can be tricky with Mercury and Neptune, especially with Mercury and Pisces. Right. I think we often end up, and I, I definitely often end up focusing on the problematic parts of that when Mercury hits hard aspects with Neptune, just because Mercury's job is to convey information and to communicate. Um, and Neptune's job, usually its job description is is like the blurring of things and the blurring of boundaries and making things less clear. And so when they get together, that tends to be an antithetical energy that can sometimes lead to uh, miscommunication or false communications in different ways. Um, but I was trying to think of some of the more positive sides of that for once instead of just giving it a purely negative spin. Well, a couple years ago, I used, um, I believe the metaphor I used for it was um, switching to sonar, right? Oh, yeah. Communication and navigation I, yeah, rather great. than. Right, you know, if you're deep underwater and you try to speak, that's not going to work very well. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, that echolocation um, and sonar—that's that. Well, I guess sonar is echolocation. 
um, is the the appropriate mode of navigation at a certain depth. It's not very useful when you're looking for your car in the parking structure. That was actually a teaching moment for me. I don't know, twelve years ago, um, I was uh, there was a Mer- there was a strong. I think there was a Mercury Neptune conjunction, and I was like, oh, what does that mean? And then I spent two hours looking for my car because I couldn't remember where I parked it. And I was like, oh, that's what, that's one of the, uh, uh, what is it? Wasn't there a movie, Dude Wears My Car? Oh. So yeah, Dude Wears My Car is one of the significations. Um, it's, you know, it's useful for, um, in, in a sense, the the depth realm of Pisces gets Mercury's uh, resources to, you know, navigate. It's just not very useful for the, you know, the dry ground, where's my car part of Mercury's responsibilities. Yeah, I think one of the, Kate, uh, sorry. Ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, so I think it was last year, Kate, uh, Kate dubbed the, the Mercury Neptune, the, uh, the goldfish yoga, uh, or combination, where you know the goldfish will kind of forget um, what was happening a second later. There is that's another thing with Neptune and with Pisces. There's so there's actually a great deal of awareness and sensitivity in the present, which can actually make doing the um, linear sequencing of past, present, future difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the cute name was the goldfish yoga, which I liked. I like that phrase, linear sequencing, because that's like a very Saturn type um, concept of like time and time being this fixed mm-hmm. sequence. But that's something that can be blurred under Neptune and, and especially Mercury Neptune combinations is linear sequences and like time and timelessness. And that's one of the reasons I think sometimes modern astrologers will associate Neptune with like dreams or like the dreamlike like state, because sometimes. There's a sense of like timelessness there um, mm. that that doesn't exist in the waking state where you're sort of st- stuck in temporal reality. Yeah, there's a vast- or you have a very yeah. I was going to say there's a vastness to it as well. I mean, we talked about Austin. You mentioned the sonar, like the deep echo, deep underwater. But I think it's equally applicable to the vastness of space. And you know, with Mercury Neptune. Uh, in Pisces, I mean, Mercury is already kind of made bigger or directed towards more expansive topics in a Jupiter ruled sign. And then when we bring Neptune in, which completely removes or brings down boundaries and limits, Mercury is able to really kind of go broad and very conceptual. And there's, it's almost like taking you into the purest forms of mathematics or something with this, where we're really into the, um, the spaciousness and the openness and the unendingness of things. And there is, I think there's three opportunities to really get a grasp or a taste or interact with a facet of Neptune in Pisces this month, because in addition to the two conjunctions that we've mentioned, the sun will also conjunct uh, Neptune in Pisces this month. It's a little earlier in the month, um, around the 10th. So we get Sun Neptune, we get Venus Neptune, and then we get Mercury Neptune. So for anybody who is learning and you want to kind of take some of that experiential observational approach to your understanding of Neptune in Pisces, I think March does offer a few different uh, iterations of Neptune in Pisces that you can explore or, or play around with. That's a really good point. I like that. And I like these two little stelliums 
quasi-stelliums that we get here around March 10th, first with the Moon moving through Aquarius and hitting Saturn and Jupiter and Mercury there, and then this little triple conjunction of the Sun and Neptune and Venus in Pisces uh, happening around the same time. Uh, so let's go back to our we speaking of like timelessness and lack of boundaries, we keep getting away <laughs> from our like chronological sequence of things. Um, I should mention at some point, I have to do a plug of our friend Kyle from Archetypal Explorer. Would this be a good time to do that as a transition? Sure. All right. Let me do that because we don't otherwise have a good stopping point or middle point in this episode. And um, he's our sponsor this month and made us some awesome graphics. So I wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, so our sponsor this month is Archetypal Explorer, which is an online astrology website and chart calculation software. And his main tagline is visual astrology for the savvy enthusiast. So you can find out more information at archetypalexplorer.com. It's got a bunch of cool features like a world dashboard that gives you information about different mundane astrological transits like um, lunations, direct and retrograde stations. And also my favorite part is a transit timeline which is a lot of the graphics that I've been showing over the past year on our forecast episodes that show when certain outer planet transits will go exact um, and what their period of operation is, is based on Archetypal Explorer. And all of those graphics are basically exported from Archetypal Explorer. So it's a really good way of visualizing transits. There's a transit timeline where you can choose different planets and what aspects you want to use and what orbs you want to use for the planet. Um, and then it also gives some different delineations um, based largely on the text of Richard Tarnas's book, Cosmos and Psyche. So it's based partially on the, the archetypal astrology school that's very much inspired by Tarnas. Um, it's also got a transit calendar where you can put in your birth chart and get some personal interpretations, especially of transits and long-term transits that you have going on at the time. Um, and it's a pretty cool little little program that I would recommend checking it out. You guys are both uh, logging in and, and starting to, or will be starting to use it shortly, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, keen to look into today. it. Cool. Um, and here I like are- the, uh, I like the, the tools for visualization, especially. Yeah, because even though I think the three of us all you know, grew up as astrologers using an ephemeris and sort of looking at transits the hard way, it is really nice, especially not just as a new student, especially, but also even as like seasoned astrologers, to be able to pull up a transit graph like this and see exactly what transits are taking place visually during the course of a year, as well as what their sort of duration is, giving them kind of an orb like of like five or ten degrees or what have you. So this is one thing that I exported from just the transit graph this year, uh, this month, showing the. Uh, Venus-Neptune conjunction, showing the Mars-Saturn trine, showing the Mercury-Mars square, and so on and so forth. So anyway, helpful tool, and I like promoting stuff like that and helping out astrologers who are building new and like innovative tools like that, because I'd like to see more growth from websites like that, where um, it's been interesting watching some of these new astrology websites sprout up over the course of the past few years that are pushing and innovating in different ways, whereas some of the more established ones like astro.com, which is still you know, the gold star for astrology websites and chart calculation, 
but it hasn't been like innovating as much as maybe it was 10 or 20 years ago. So it's nice to see other websites from younger astrologers that are sprouting up and starting to push in new directions in different ways. So anyway, yeah, definitely. Uh, shout out to Kyle from Archetypal Explorer. And you can find out more information about that program at archetypalexplorer.com. All right. So um, back to our forecast and back to our um, struggle with a chronological breakdown of the month. I think we're at mid-month at this point. And what is the next back major to linear thing? sequencing? Yeah, back to the linear the sequencing. linear sequencing. I think we're up to Sun and Aries ingress. If I'm yeah, not- which yeah. is a good point to re-enter time. Correct. We will Definitely. be a, a little bit more anchored <laughs> like, here. Oh, there there are things to do down there in the uh, of time. Yes. So the sun goes into Aries on the 20th, as it does around this time every year. And very closely after that, on the 21st, Venus also moves into Aries. So we start the shift away from Pisces season and the shift into Aries season and the start of the new uh, solar year, which some people, some astrologers, I know AFAN years ago, like 20 years ago, started that designated that as International Astrology Day, like the day of the Aries ingress, which I always thought was a little bit biased more towards tropical astrology, although it's kind of hard to get all astrologers on the same page about something. So I can understand, you know, just giving up and like picking something at some point in order to try to celebrate <laughs> astrology. Yeah. Yeah, so Aries ingress. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point about the problem and also the difficulty of coming up with a better solution. It's like, well, yeah. which yeah. you know, it's a. Uh, I mean, I don't know. We could do so. Here's an idea, and but this is also very biased towards the Hellenistic tradition. Hmm. But you could do, um, uh, you could do an international international Hellenistic astrology day when the sun is in. Uh, Leo and the moon is in Cancer, like in the Thema Mundi. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, you could do that. Would it be the the tropical signs or like the sidereal signs? Though, then you get into tricky things. Let's have two. Two. Oh yeah, that that could be it. So every time there's like a discrepancy, you just do both in different dates. Yeah, it's fun. We don't have you know. We could always use a few more holidays. Right, or it and could everyone just should be, get work off on both those days, paid leave. Yeah, I would like that. Um, celebrating, I mean, it is nice to celebrate astrologers, you know, from time to time, and astro uh, celebrate the profession and the study the and, and the, the practice of yeah. of it. Yeah, definitely. So there's something to be said for that. All right, so let's look back at the chart for the Aries ingress and the Venus ingress. So what's going on here at this point? This is shortly before the Mercury-Mars square, of course, that we mentioned earlier, which happens at around 11 degrees of Pisces to 11 Gemini around the 23rd, 24th. Um, what else is going on or what else is notable to you? We did mention, I think Austin, you said you had something else to mention about the synodic cycle of Venus and that conjunction that takes place at five degrees of Aries around the twenty fourth or twenty fifth. Yeah, well, so now we're now we're here. Um, so just first, first things first, the the movement of vote, both Venus and the Sun in quick succession to Aries 
Um, you know, it instantly makes things more activated, warmer, hotter, raises the temperature. It's time to do more. Yes. Right. It's time to aspire to more. There's a desire for action. There's a desire for, how should we say, to act in the world. Um, and then that's followed shortly by the Venus Sun conjunction. And as we said earlier, this is the superior or exterior conjunction. This is the one where Venus is on the far side of the sun. And so I tend to experience these and, you know, also conceptualize them as <clears throat> the sun, um, you know, uh, the sun like looking out into the cosmos through the lens of Venus, right? It's looking away from the earth, looking out into, you know, looking out into the far reaches. Um, and that I find that there's something more, um, how should we say, divine or aspir and aspirational uh, about this Venus-Sun conjunction. The retrograde one is so deeply personal, mm -hmm. and this one is sort of, it's almost like the, like the divine archetype for Venusian things, right? Setting, um, setting the ideal for relationship um, and, um, and how should we say that, like defining the, the shape of true desire, right? There's mm. a looking way out into like, what is, you know, what, it, what, what, what face um, will the beloved wear for this cycle? Beautiful. Yeah. So there's a real sense of sort of conceptualizing and visualizing. Yeah. And, and bringing that in, I guess, Austin is what you're saying or connecting with it, connecting yeah. with the image maybe. Yeah, in, in in looking out, right? Mm -hmm. We uh, even though we're looking out, we're connecting to an image, and that brings it in. And this is a point of again invisibility, maximum invisibility for Venus. Mm. Um, but it's also you know it's it's maximally private, therefore. Mm. And you know the the seed desire for a whole cycle of action and passion and relation, um, you know, is is planted quietly, but then will bear fruit throughout the, um, the rest of the cycle. Yeah. And I think, uh, one of the things I had been mulling over was how the Venus sun conjunction ties into the full moon in Libra, which is just about mm. a day or so later, a day or two later, because of course, with the full moon being in Libra, Venus is going to be the the guide or the ruler of the lunation, if you like. And it, it, in addition to that, Venus is with the sun as the moon opposes. So it's really bringing in some relational themes and highlighting that Aries-Libra axis even further. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's the full moon. It takes place at eight degrees of Libra. And Venus is at eight degrees of Aries, conjunct the sun still at that point. And we have Mercury and Neptune forming their conjunction pretty closely at 19 Pisces and 21 Pisces, respectively. Yeah, so this full moon yes. almost seems a little classic in the Libra-Venus sort of approach around relationships and exploring the balance between self and other or prioritizing the needs of the individual versus the uh, sort of the plans of the partnership, for instance. And I think to what you were saying, Austin, about that kind of looking out through the lens of Venus and then participating quite quickly thereafter in this full moon in Libra, it really seems like 
some adjusting or reframing or reworking within the relationship space space around how you interact with other people in a wide variety of situations. So not necessarily and only romantically, but professionally, personally, uh, you know, with family or friends and what have you as well. Yeah, I like that. I like this lunation in general. This is like a not a very tense one because it's also got some nice flowing trines both um, to Saturn at 11 degrees of Aquarius, trining the moon at 8 Libra, as well as a trine from Mars at 14 degrees of Gemini, um, again with a somewhat nice flowing trine to the moon. So there's not like a lot of tension in this um, lunation aside from maybe the, the Mercury-Neptune conjunction or the natural tension that comes from the opposition, as you were just talking about, Kelly, between the Moon in Libra and the Sun-Venus conjunction in Aries? Yeah. I don't know. I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about the grand trine between the Moon and both malefics. It's, you know, they're trines, they're happy angles, but the planets aren't necessarily the happiest. Um, I don't think you know. I, I, I'm not saying that it's um, uh, some sort of vicious nightmare, um, but I, I I like I like my moons applying to benefics or just not applying to malefics. Not applying. So you know, yeah. an interpretation of that would be the you know the the difficulties are very present, right? The moon is looking right at the difficulties, but has found at least a good angle on the problems, mm. right? Because they're they're like kind a, of a functional approach to the problem or something. Yeah, because um, in a sense there are like two kinds of good or two kinds of goods. There are probably more, but one kind of good is the absence of problems, mm -hmm. and then another kind of good is the the good of solving a problem. Right. Both both of those are are pleasurable and would qualify for a good day, but they're they're very different. Right in quality, one one depends on the absence of of, of problems. It kind of reminds me of a issue I ran into years ago with Demetrio when we were working on the Hellenistic definitions of maltreatment and the conditions of maltreatment and the question of whether um, a planet like the Moon can be enclosed and maltreated if it has flowing positive aspects that are surrounding it by malefics, like trines and sextiles on either side of it, and whether that would be a sufficient condition for maltreatment or if the, the easiness of the aspect is not does not make it enough to make it a serious condition of affliction. Do you have a feeling on that? It's definitely somewhere in between, right? It's not it's certainly not the same as um, being boxed in by hard aspects or conjunctions. Um, you know, it's still the, the 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 problems are present again. Um, but if the moon in this case, if the moon has resources, then that may be a a, a good setup to solve problems, right? But I, again, it's not the absence of problems. Um, so yeah, I'd say in between, thumbs up, fantastic, and um, you know, um, imprisoned in um, a living horror. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't go to that level of difficulty because, yeah, it, it, I mean, that's where I think the trine features come through. Right. Uh, there's a little bit of reception with the moon in Libra and Saturn. Um, 
which could add a constructive quality, like this is difficult, but I'm willing to to address the problem, even if it's uncomfortable in the, you know, the process of doing so perhaps. Yeah. Um, I like that you're taking that into account, uh, the sort of mitigations. And this raised a question I was been thinking about recently about, and this is like a digression, but um, some a student was asking me, is the malefic that's contrary to the sect, does it ever provide good or constructive things, or is it always just bad or the worst case scenario? And I was thinking about that, and that was a really good question. But the part of the answer is no. Like sometimes there can be positive things that come of that. It's just it will tend to be the area where some of the greatest difficulties come from in your chart, which would be you know Saturn in a night chart or Mars in a day chart. But there can still be positive or constructive things. It's not like that area of your life is always just going to be terrible necessarily. Um, is that the take you guys would have on it as well? Well, I mean, my, my take is that planets, especially in a nativity, do all of the things that they promise. And one of the things that, for example, an out-of-seg malefic does is it promises to cause problems of a certain type and in a certain area. That planet may also um, promise you that it does a bunch of other stuff, some of which may be great, some of which may be just fine. Um, but you know, the planets tend to do all of the things. And the out of sect malificness promises one thing. And the delivery of that doesn't negate the others. Right. It's just one piece of that or one piece of information. Yeah. It's, and I think it's also important to keep in mind that there will sometimes be expressions where, say, the malefic out of sect, to use that as our focus here, it will be more or less noticeable or impactful. Uh, based on some of the timing factors and the way that it aspects and interacts with other pieces in the chart. Um, you know, so if it impairs, it, it, there's, I mean, there's so many sort of rabbit holes you can go down. So yeah, it's, I think it how, how much it comes into the main story of life depends on the natal configurations. And then we can see um, more or less of that based on the timing. So it won't always be fully present at maximum difficulty level every year of a person's life uh, for the most part. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, all right. So there's other digressions we could probably get into there. Know, we but... could, if we go down the natal track, we could be here for four days. <laughs> right. It turns into a workshop. But I, yeah. I'd like to circle around, uh, circle back really quickly to what Kelly said at the very beginning of our discussion of the full moon, which I think is really probably more important than a lot of the things that we said that followed, which is it is a full moon in a Venus ruled sign right after that perfect Kazemi moment between the sun and Venus. And so the, you know, this image of desire, the, these relational insights, et cetera, et cetera, which happen, you know, quietly, um, you know, beneath the screen of the, the sunlight, um, are immediately asked to be made manifest or to be implemented by the full moon directly opposite both those planets in Venus's sign, right? It's sort of like, okay, and you know, the new program doesn't, um, doesn't float gently into being, right? It's, <laughs> which is appropriate because of the conjunctions in Aries, right? Um, it's um, immediately called to duty. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, it comes comes in strong and obvious, I guess. 
strong and obvious lunation. I like that as our second keyword of the month compared to especially the, the Pisces new moon that was coming in two weeks earlier. Yeah, yeah, these are very different lunations. One thing I would say about the just the fact that the that conjunction between the Venus and the Venus, uh, Venus and the Sun happens in the first decade of Aries. Um, I think the relational question is going to, for uh, in a lot of cases, sound something like, "How do we both, uh, or how do both of us, or how do all of us get to?" Um, maximize our own potential and follow our own ambitions while remaining in rapport with each other right how do we how do we both achieve or how do we all achieve um and how do we resolve the how do we resolve the moments where my achievement and your achievement bump into each other right that first decade of Aries is very ambitious got a lot of energy wants to go out and prove something to the world make the um you know, invisible potential visible for all to see, but this is, uh, you know, this is the Venus and the sun meeting there, right? So the, it's that territory, which becomes a place of negotiation, right? How do we do this, um, without just becoming, you know, vicious reality show contestants, you know, ready to stab each other in the back. things to watch out for under the full moon in Libra, ending up on a well, <laughs> reality show. Yeah. Quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but I know exactly what you mean. Not that I watch a lot of reality TV, but just the the little bits that you that flit across the awareness of of sort of the, I don't even know how to put it into words, actually. Um, but yeah, it was what, just, it's the, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, what you were putting into words is sort of that, me versus we uh, sort of interaction that I always think about when there's strong Aries Libra access activity is how do I do these things that are important to me and still participate in this partnership, whether it's a professional or a personal interaction that's also important to me, you know, because obviously time and energy and resources are limited. So how do we adjust or renegotiate that interaction and those dynamics? Yeah. Yeah, one thing I want to mention before I forget about it, just looking at the um, transit chart of some of the transits I meant to mention um, that I exported from Archetypal Explorer, uh, I have a tendency to focus on hard aspects. And I think this is something maybe I carry over. Um, I mean, a lot of modern astrologers share it, but maybe it's something I'm carrying over from like Noel Till or something like that, where he and some of the cosmobiologist, for example, will sometimes only exclusively focus on hard aspects. But then one of the because hard aspects sometimes produce more, have more energy, and there's more tension, and that tension can sometimes manifest more in a in a an event or a literal event that's very clear and very evident. But one of the side effects of that is sometimes overlooking. Um, flowing aspects that can be more constructive but less evident in their manifestations sometimes, even though they can be occasionally just as important. Um, so the reason for mentioning that is one of the things that happens around the 21st, 22nd is Mars forms an exact trine with Saturn. And I wanted to mention that because we've talked so much over the past 12 months about uh, Mars squaring Saturn, that that's a very different manifestation of that energy to be having taking, taking place this month. And it happens right around the uh, 21st 
uh, it looks like. Yeah, 21st yeah. Of, the, of the month. Yeah. Yeah, that's an aspect that I... I also think has a level of being productive or constructive. Uh, right. If we look at some of the symbolism of Mars and Saturn, this could be about uh, putting some energy or effort into a long-term project or plan. It's maybe the the grounding or the uh, methodical sort of cautious approach of Saturn steadying Mars in some capacity. You know, it's it's that idea of what could we do today that might not give us an immediate benefit, but that may pay off in the future at some point. Yeah, I like that. And I can relate to that having Mars natally in a sign ruled by Saturn and Capricorn. I was reflecting on that recently, how one of my main things is just taking small incremental steps, but that every time I do something, I try to like improve it just a little bit. Or every mm. podcast that I've done, every forecast episode, I've tried to find one little thing that we can tweak to like improve to do better. And that doesn't look like it results in much progress at first on a small local scale, but then when you you stand outside of it and you look at it in the broad scope of things, you realize that you've made a ton of progress over a long enough period of time, but it's through these small incremental steps of like pushing forward and pushing upwards, but just a little bit. And that's, I think, a really good encapsulation of a more constructive Mars Saturn dynamic that might be forming here through that trine. Yeah, I think I, I personally tend to see Mars Saturn aspects in general create a grind. Um, but there are grinds of many different flavors and, um, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and also greater and lesser degrees of suffering. Um, you know, Saturn trine Mars is the, 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 how should we say the minimal suffering grind, right? And by grind, I mean like steady effort over time, even when it's not fun, right? Cause if it's when it's, you know, if you just do, if you just act as you desire, that's not a grind, right? That's, there's no Saturn there. Right. I mean, um, that sounds like the, the pleasurable grind. So it's like the, uh, well, you know, well, because there's, there's an, there's a unpleasurable grind, which is like, you know, you're pushing a, a boulder up a hill and it's like falling back on you and occasionally crushing you. Mm. And then the pleasurable grind is more like the, you know, World of Warcraft player who's like playing a video game and, and largely enjoying it, but they're having to do something well, repetitive and well, slow and somewhat boring, but they're gaining well, something in the process. Let's call it satisfying rather than pleasurable. Pleasurable. Okay. We don't want that to be a lot the of the a lot line. of the, the pleasure the pleasure is in what has been accomplished or, you know, um the loot gained, not necessarily the process. Mm. Um, but like a process that's not brutal, that gives, um, you know, a uh, reason for satisfaction. So I, um, given all that, I do think Mars is going to be chafing a bit at this trine. The, um, you know, it's Mars and Gemini, which is not exactly a stay on task Mars. Mm -mm. And then the ruler is that Mercury in Pisces hanging out with Neptune, which is also not focused, right? And so N Mars is with the head of the dragon or Rahu, um, which doesn't incline to balanced action either. And then uh, there are a few people in the comments, I'm sorry, I can't remember the names, who are pointing out that Mars is 
out of bounds. So its declination um, is um, out of the the path of the sun and the moon. So there there are a number. There are a couple. There I would say uh, several little pieces of Mars's condition that show us Mars kind of chafing at wanting to you know um, um, kind of get in the harness and and pull. But and that that's maybe part of the the description of that is like like keeping you know keeping that Mars and Gemini on task to get things done rather than you know doing thirty other things and <laughs> achieving none of them. So that, I think there's a little tension there. Yeah, I, I think that Mars perhaps doesn't enjoy the experience of the aspect, but that. The, there's something about the energy of Saturn that can temporarily contain or help to focus uh, or direct the efforts of Mars. Because I, I have got my eye as well, Austin, on the uh, the Mars North Node aspect, which will peak a few days later. And I think that's when we get uh, sort of maximum Mars mania uh, with the Mars in Gemini of just all the things and that insatiable quality coming through. That actually brings up uh, one of the episodes that I did this month with Ronnie Gale Dreyer about the early history of the nodes. So having that Mars North Node conjunction this month um, might be relevant. It looks like that goes exact around the 25th or so. Um, and the deep dive sort of discussion we did on that was just about how the modern associations of the nodes with past lives or future lives was more of a modern thing. And if they, if you go back prior to the 20th century, in the Western tradition, there aren't really any associations with past lives with the nodes. And in the Indian tradition, even though they do have concepts of karma and reincarnation, they didn't necessarily associate that in particular with the nodes. The entire chart is a result of past karmas. Um, but how Maybe talking about that North Node Mars conjunction, we could expand on that. How you guys view the nodes, or um, interpret them, maybe in a context like this when Mars is conjoining it. Well, so um, from um, my particular to interrupt you, what are your keywords? Because we had a hard time actually coming up with what the Indian keywords and summarizing them concisely were for for Rahu or the North Node. Uh, or Ketu, the South Node. What are your like Indian keywords from the specific like schools that you've studied with for that? Mm. Is that something well, that can even be that, summarized? Well, we the, a lot of the keywords um, revolve around excess, um, and 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 uh, uh, going uh, eating to the point where food becomes poison. Um, getting getting dirty and excessive, right? Doing overdoing things, you know. Again, like if you overeat, it's functionally any food eaten enough becomes a poison, right? Um, any um, any drug like caffeine, like coffee. If I had eighteen, you know, if I had four pots of coffee, I would begin poisoning myself. Um, there's an excessiveness. There's a willingness to get down and dirty. Um, you know, to engage in the to engage in the world um, without excessive uh, regard for abstract ideas of purity, um, uh, yeah, uh, purity or um, uh, or morality. There's just a like, let's let's you know, let's get out there and get dirty. A lot of times, I use 
as a caricature, like a teaching caricature, I will use um, Scarface uh, for the North Node, right? Get it, you know, you first you get the money, then you get the power. Um, there's a like, let's, you know, like, let's light the town on fire. Let's go out. Let's have a good time. Let's not worry too much about um, health in the future, et cetera, et cetera. And these are caricatures, mind you, but um, that's sort of the that's the general direction. Got it. Um, is that how do you view the nodes, Kelly? Look, I uh, I definitely wanted to defer to Austin on that front because I have picked up a few concepts and ideas sort of by association from the more Indian traditions, but I know Austin is much more well versed in that. Um, but yeah, I, I also like the word of excess for the North Node, the idea of overdoing it, uh, a concept like workaholism or being a workaholic, um, depending on, you know, what is near the North Node or, you know, that we're, what other symbols we bring in. But that idea of not knowing when to stop and that the other phrase that I often use is this insatiable hunger um, which is kind of a similar thing. And just referencing the idea of, you know, the head of the dragon that doesn't have the lower half. And so consumption that doesn't know when to stop because there's no recognition of enough or fullness or satiation. So it is, um, there's a wildness, I think, uh, you know, and in this instance with with it being Mars and it being an immutable sign, there is this sort of I can't get enough information or I'm doing so many things. I'm overstimulated. I'm hyperstimulated. And I think that tendency to be scattered is there. And one of the cautions that I was thinking about this particular Mars North node was the idea that, you know, you can be busy and just moving paper around, or you can be busy in a way that is creating a sense of progress and momentum and you know, so there's 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 different kinds of busy basically, and you want to make sure that you're busy with a purpose rather than just busy as a way of filling your time. I think. Mm, nice. So I want to add one more thing. I'm just thinking of um, yeah, like traditional Vedic as I was taught. A really important component is some form of confusion or obscuration. Um, the mental confusion. Um, about a situation, um, uh, which uh, no doubt stems from the fact that we we know the North Node um, or or Rahu or the Dragon's Head through the obscuration of the Sun and Moon, right? There, the idea is that that shadow mm -hmm. creates a shadow on the mind, and that we can't see things uh, clearly. Mm. Um, in the Hellenistic so, tradition, yeah, so they call them sometimes the the eclipsing places is the title for the nodes. Yeah, which is the life blocking. Yeah, and I think that whenever, whenever a per, whenever you're, if, you know, if you're trying to, if a person is struggling to think about the nodes, always going back to what you know, why we talk about them at all, what do they do? They tell us about eclipses, right? Um, right. And starting with that, that shadowing, uh, that bodhika sort of quality, um, is really important. Um, and then what you're saying, Kelly, uh, about the insatiable quality, or I guess both of you were saying, and Mars hitting the North Node reminds me that there was a, at least in the Western tradition, in the medieval tradition, they associated the North Node with increase, and as a result of a side effect of that, said that the malefics tend to be bad when conjoining the North Node because their tendency towards maleficence is then increased, their natural tendency towards that, and therefore can be 
almost out of control or exacerbated in some way, whereas they preferred the malefics Mars and Saturn to be with the south node so that their natural tendency would be decreased in some way. Yeah, so in um in my tradition taught by Freedom Cole is taught by Sanjay Roth, um we don't love nodes and malefics together. Those are that's treated as a pair of malefics. Um but Mars Mars North Node or Mars Rahu is considered a more difficult combination and then Saturn South Node is considered to be a more difficult combination. That those are um you know South Node Mars ain't great. I can tell you I've got it in my natal chart. Um, and North Node Saturn ain't great. Um, but that there's a there's a there's a um, how should we say a special synergy of difficulty with Mars Rahu. And the idea very we could say very simply is it's um it is um difficult to be confused, Rahu, right? And it's unpleasant to be angry, Mars, but Angry and confused is a very uh, is a potentially toxic cocktail because then you're attacking. Not only are you attacking, you're attacking the wrong people, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's that that's considered to be a particularly annoying synergy. Well, angry and confused is a funny keyword, also with the Mars Neptune conjunction that'll be forming at the same time, uh, right after that. Oh yeah, with Mercury Neptune. And the Mars node. Yeah. I do think it's really nice that um, as soon, even while Mars is making that conjunction uh, to the dragon's head, it's moving into trine with Jupiter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, uh, in the method I've been taught in, Jupiter and the North Node have an ability to cancel each other. You know, Jupiter uplifts and cleans up and makes us sort of remember our philosophical or spiritual um, center and try to act in a more um, moral and balanced way. Um, and so Rahu and, and, and Jupiter have a way of sort of countering each other. Um, and so that trying to Jupiter does, I think, does a lot of work there. Um, and, you know, and Jupiter is about an expansion of pers- perspective, which helps cancel or at least mitigate some of the like um you know lost in a in a in a smoky cloud in your head and angry and not not seeing things straight you know jupiter makes enough room and disperses the you know the the air Hmm. that's beautiful i like that um well you know these are all aspects happening at the very end of the month and i think that kind of brings us to the end of the month in terms of things we needed to mention in the forecast is there anything else that we're forgetting i've got a couple little discussion topics we can touch on but i want to make sure we've covered everything when it comes to the march forecast um there's a i would just say there's a real set of pacing changes um, to each third of the month, like the first third of the month is really different from February. It's maybe not different from the last few days, but it's really different from the you know super fixed February or whatever we called mm. it. Um, you know, in in a lot of ways, it's pretty nice. It's um, more adaptable, et cetera, et cetera. There's some. We've still got that. We've got Mercury, Jupiter, and Sun, Venus, and Pisces. Excuse me, Mercury, Jupiter together in Aquarius and Sun. Venus in Pisces for that maybe first third of the month. And that's that's a pretty nice vibe. 
middle of the month, things are kind of changing places and rearranging. And then the last third of the month is um, pretty kinetic, right? With um, It's relational because of that Sun-Venus conjunction, but it's, it's very kinetic. Like things are in action. We've got that the Mars trines, the Mars Rahu, the Sun and Venus and Aries, the full moon, like every, like it's very go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that Mars as a whole feels very different from both January and February, and there'll be a lot more activity and movement. I think as we go through the month, the pace becomes increasingly fast, but also a little bit more specific. I think about the the Pisces kind of mood through the early part of the month with the Sun and Venus there. Um, you know, there's a little bit of a mellow quality, but then once the Sun mm-hmm. gets into Aries, it's a little bit more like this is the target that I'm aiming for rather than just sort of floating along. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. A more directed quality. Yeah, more more like let's do this specific thing rather than everything. Right, like the the same amount of light, maybe, but narrowed into a laser beam, or mm. maybe not that narrow, but you know, like um, uh, coming through yeah, some like cone or something. Yeah, yeah, like the the lens focusing, you know, being pretty wide angle. Like I mean, almost maximally wide angle at that that new moon in Pisces with Neptune and Venus. Like that's very. Um, you know, flower open as much as possible to take in as much starlight and then kind of collecting that light and then slowly closing to narrow it into a beam. Mm. Oh, you couldn't see my hands. I was doing yeah, flower that was beautiful. And bean hands. Yeah. They're like jazz hands, but flower jazz and hands. bean hands. I'd like to see the dance uh, <laughs> incarnation of that statement, please. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, that's nice. All right. I think that is the. That's it for the forecast for this month. Um, in terms of miscellaneous discussion topics, I usually bring up a few topics of just things that were covered during the course of episodes in the previous month or previous few weeks, uh, and then talk about them in, with you guys in order to get your take on it. So we already talked about the nodes thing, which was the episode I did at the beginning of the month with Ronnie Gill Dreyer. The other one that Could I just I did. One- can I add one thing to that, Chris, really quickly? Because I feel like yeah. I was a little bit too negative about Rahu. So okay. Rahu is all those things, but those absolutely can serve the person. They can have benefic results in the chart. Um, and I will just give as an example, because this came up the other day. So if we're talking about hunger, right? Like, oh, I'm just never satisfied. Hunger is tremendously important for a lot of people's success. Like two people with the same skills, it's the hungry one that went, you know, that wakes up earlier, grinds harder, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, hunger is an almost irreplaceable part of, um, you know, great victories and impressive successes. Right, and and the drive to succeed or to achieve something, uh, whether personally or or sometimes even socially. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things you'll see um, when when people are analyzing individual sports like uh, like boxing or mixed martial arts is, you know, somebody provides a performance that's not as good. And they're like, I don't know, they seem like they were in great shape. The skills were there, but uh, they're just not hungry anymore. They don't have mm-hmm. the same drive. Um, it's something you it's a very real phenomenon that gives 
um, a different result in the binary of combat sports, right? Where you either win or lose, right? And, and uh, anybody who watches sports like that will see that hunger makes a huge difference. Mm. And so that's that's Rahu. That's beautiful. Yeah, that the hunger, even though we portrayed it in some detrimental ways or as a negative, Austin, what you're saying is that it it can be, it can serve a positive outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks for adding that. So that sort of touches base on the node episode, and um, which I did partially in order to explain. Well, it ties into a recurring theme on the podcast this month, which is that sometimes, like the way astrology is practiced now, sometimes if you go back more than a century or more than a few decades, you see that astrology was practiced differently. And it's sometimes surprising or disorienting to realize how many of the concepts that we take for granted sometimes are relatively recent in terms of the long span of the entire tradition. So, one of the other ones that I talked about recently in the last episode was the Void of Course Moon uh, with Yasmin Boland, who's a fellow, I guess, originally Aussie astrologer that you're, you know, right, Kelly? Yeah, I've known Yasmin probably since my very early days as an astrologer uh, from our days in Bondi Beach in Sydney. Uh, so it was exciting to me that you guys were able to connect and have a conversation about that. Yeah. Did you almost like study under her very early in your studies or something like that? No, I had studied with someone else, but we connected around some eclipses in like 2002, 2003. I think it was the Cancer Capricorn eclipses maybe, but sort of back in that vintage. I think there was some Jonathan Kainer connection and I think I literally cold emailed her in the very early days of the internet where I was like, hi, I'm an astrologer in Sydney and you do astrology and maybe we should meet up. Like very just out of a propos of nothing. Okay. And she was curious and willing enough to meet with this random stranger from the internet. And once we got together, you know, she was like, oh, this person, yeah, she knows a little bit about astrology and we just sort of hit it off. From then, so uh, yeah, yes. Nice. <laughs> I don't know uh, how much more to say. Sorry. Well, I, like I remember those whole... days of the internet where we were excited to meet new people, right? And you would like email someone, and you know, you might actually say yes, and it wasn't a totally crazy thing to do. Right? They weren't just. We weren't all taught to be so guarded and rightfully suspicious. Yeah, uh, the internet was a different place then. <laughs> Well, and I remember you were reaching out to like a lot of people because you reached out to some like Aya people around that time frame, maybe a few years later as well. But then it would still be years later before we would actually connect at a conference. Yeah, yeah. I think I was just hungry. You know, speaking when we talked about hunger, but just wanting more connection with astrology communities. And uh, there's a small community in Australia, but you know, there's there's obviously more in a place like the US where there's just you know more people. Yeah, I remember. Um, emailing people and meeting them, even when I was in the US, you know, I'm going to be here attending a conference. Yeah. So it, it would take a while, but you'd get there. And yeah. That's one of the things I'm sad uh, that like astrologers that have just gotten in over the past few years are missing out on is just this huge gap where there's no astrology conferences and no ability to make that in person connection, even though some people are connecting online. But 
it's still different. That's a different dynamic than actually meeting up with people in person. Yes. Yeah, well, that'll that'll get remedied, but we'll get it's there. Certainly, an issue for now. Yeah, I hope. Well, so. and there's also there's also the dynamic that Kelly was talking about before. You know, if we go back more than just a, even five years, there just weren't that many. Like there, you know, there weren't nearly as many people who are seriously interested in astrology. And so, mm-hmm. like, like with your story, Kelly, you're like. I'm another person who's really into astrology who lives in a large city. Like right now that is right. not remarkable, but you know, back then it was like, Oh my God, there's an astro another astrologer three towns over. Like we've got to, we've got to meet up. That, that was exactly it with Yasmin. I mean, we were just on different sides of Sydney and I was like, we sh-, and I think that was probably behind her reason that, that said yes was, Oh yeah, there's someone in Sydney who likes astrology. Let's go hang at the beach or have a chat or something. And you're right, Austin, because that was nearly 20 years ago and so much has changed in the last five years in terms of being able to find people to talk about with astrology. It just wasn't like that prior to then. Yeah. I don't know how to like express that emphatically enough to like newer astrologers that have just come in over the past two years, how not normal this is for something like even your sun moon rising for for most people to know that or being able to mention that to people in passing and just about everybody will have looked that up at some point in addition to their sun sign it totally i caught um an astrologer has written an article for something like vogue magazine about the moon sign in a person's chart and how that speaks to your emotional stuff and i this just happened recently they they shared a post about it probably on instagram and i just remember thinking oh my god this is what i wished for when i started in astrology 20 years ago you know i wished that i could write about moon signs in a you know a mainstream magazine and that just to your point about it is this just the the um like the market penetration of astrology right now is is more than I can ever recall it being. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it happened overnight. It wasn't like there had been steady growth for the last ten years. Right. There was yeah. like I don't know, like some month two or three, like three years ago, where it seems like, you know, 10 million people just decided they were really into astrology. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and you know, it's funny is when that started happening and we saw the uptick in all of those articles in the mainstream media around late 2017, 2018, about is astrology becoming more popular? Um, that was also when all the astrology apps launched, and that may have helped to propel it as well. But it's always a, it's like a chicken or the egg type scenario there. Um, yeah. Anyways, absolutely. so you you I were going to talk about the void of course moon. The void of Chris. course moon. Yeah. Like, what do you what do you guys think about the void of course moon? We talked about the three different definitions. There's the Hellenistic definition, which has only been recovered in the past twenty years, which is that originally, evidently, it was that the moon doesn't complete an exact aspect in the next thirty degrees. But then, at some point in the middle medieval tradition, especially after the rise of horary, it seemed like it changed because there was more of a focus on whether planets would perfect the aspect while they were in the current signs before changing signs in order to answer the hoary question in the affirmative or the negative. And so it seemed like there was this other definition of does the moon complete any aspect before it leaves the sign that it's in? And that became a common definition, and that's the modern one. 
but it tended to be something that was more restricted to use in horary and electional astrology. And in modern times, um, that version of the Void of Course Moon became popularized over the past few decades, and it's one of the only electional rules I think that many modern astrologers know because electional isn't very a very common practice, and there's not a lot of books on it in 20th century astrology. And I think as a result of that, sometimes it gets a little bit overplayed as if that's the first thing you look at or that's the end-all and be-all of electional astrology sometimes, but I'm not sure that it's as important as it's sometimes hyped up to be. Uh, then in addition to that, there's another definition which is based on a reinterpretation of how William Lilly was defining the void of course moon, which is basically, is the moon with an orb of an aspect that's applying regardless of the sign boundary? And that's some uh, traditional astrologer's version of what they think the void of course moon is. Do you guys use and the void of that, course moon? Or go ahead. And is that um, that orb based on the moon's average daily motion, like thirteen-ish degrees? It's supposed to be in their Lily? interpretation based on like the moieties of the planet. So it's something more like ten degrees or less. I'm not sure of the exact specifics, but that's my understanding. Because that's that's sort of that's what'll catch my eye is if the moon is not only not going to complete another aspect before leaving the sign, but doesn't make another aspect um, within a full twenty four hours of motion into the next sign, right? So it just you know it means that there's like a whole day or you know a whole day and night where the where the moon's not making contact uh, with any of the other planets. Yeah, that's something I tend to pay attention to as well, extending it to like 12 degrees. Because if the moon's at like 28 degrees of a sign, but it's applying to a conjunction with Jupiter three degrees later at one degree of the next sign, then it's basically in a very close applying conjunction with Jupiter at that point. And even if there's some change of circumstance indicated by the sign boundary, I'm not in an electional context usually that worried about that being a major deal breaker in some way. Whereas I think that's often treated or sort of hyped up as if if the moon's not going to make any other aspect before it changes signs, then absolutely nothing will come of whatever is initiated at that time. But that's something that takes place, you know, every two or three days. Yeah, I think that's very strong in the medieval kind of lily horary sort of approach that the the moon changing sign is like a barrier of some kind. So if there's no aspect until after that, we've got some sort of blocking quality. Um, but I think there's so many other factors. Like if you're looking at an electional chart or even a horary chart, I think other aspects can override that. I, I don't think I'd make a whole judgment just based on on the moon. Uh in the change of sign definition. But I, I, when I learned about the Hellenistic, about almost like the whole 30 degrees forward or back, the really, mm -hmm. the, the, the most in extreme definition, that's really interesting to me because that's only going to happen in some very specific circumstances that the moon can travel, you know, such a, a wide distance with not interacting with another planet. And that, that is interesting. And I think that is something to pay attention to. Yeah, and that one's very rare that it won't complete an aspect within 30 degrees. It seems like it only occurs maybe once a year in some years like last year. But luckily, uh, Peter from AstroSeek has programmed that into his website. You can actually look that up really easily these days, which is kind of nice. Excellent. Yeah. 
Um, okay, well, I think we're on the same page about that. About though the the moon changing signs, not like a huge deal breaker in an electional context, as long as it's applying to something within a reasonable distance. Let's say. Yes, there's been a couple of instances with client charts where the moon in that late degree of a sign and not making an aspect before it changes. There's that idea of a little bit of a lack of focus or a lack of clear direction has been something that the individual has related to. Um, and it sort of just becomes a part of the nature of the being, I think. So I think there's a slight difference in like a horary or electional versus in a natal piece. So it is something that yeah. you've seen come up in a natal context? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, not I've seen be- it come up in, in natal. Okay. Um, but not be like, because f- some of the, it was one of the things that's funny in the Hellenistic definitions, because it's like Firmicus, and Firmicus is always really over the top in his delineations, but he's also talking about the Hellenistic version, which is extremely rare and treating it as an extremely negative thing. But if you're using the more modern definition, then that's a more common, sort of less rare, maybe less um, of a big deal type thing. Yeah, certainly. Right, it's it's literally a less extreme condition, um, and it's worth noting that there's a Vedic astrology sort of take on the same issue with a similarly derived name, which is the Kamadrama Yoga. Right. Um, and we touched on that very briefly at the end, so I'm glad you're mentioning that here because I, I wanted to go into it more. Yeah, it, so the principle is the same, which is the moon doesn't like being alone. Yes. Um, right. But the it's a way lonely, that it's lonely moon is basically what a void of course moon is. Like hashtag lonely. Yeah. Moon. Right. Um, no friends. Nobody to hang out with. Nobody to take care of. Right. And so um, the the Kamadrama is no planet in the same sign as the moon in the sign before or the sign after. So this is basically all by conjunction, but with conjunction only, but a wider orb. Um, but then there are a variety of cancellation conditions. So in a natal chart, for example, I, I have a I have a Kamadrama moon. You have a lonely um, moon? I do. Um that rules my ascendant. With um, cancer rising. But one, yeah. One of the uh in both zodiacs, they uh but anyway, one of the one of the cancellation conditions is do you have an angular benefic? Okay, that'll give you direction. Right? Like there right. the yes. the cancel a lot of the cancellation conditions are a pretty low bar. They're not there in every chart, um, but the the traditional deline- textual delineations for the Kamadrama um, are also pretty, like very intense. It's basically, it comes back to basically being poor and miserable. Um, and so, you know, uh, angular benefic of any sort um, cancels that. Yeah, which is Interesting because that's what Firmicus says as well as an angular benefic as a mitigating factor for it. And it was interesting then how it was translated into the Indian tradition because if it's true, as Antiochus and Porphyry and Rhetorius say, that the Hellenistic or the Greek definition of kenodromia or running in the void was just the moon not completing an applying aspect in the next 30 degrees moving forward, it's interesting how that was translated into the Indian tradition. Where the word, the Greek word kenodromia was just transliterated as kenodruma, and mm-hmm. um, and instead it was translated as a sign based conjunction, basically neither applying within the next sign nor separating in the sign before that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it's still like the same concept of basically like a lonely moon that has no aspects with other planets to protect it or keep it company in some way, but it's just it's adapted in a, in a different way. Yeah, and with just because I think you might find this interesting, the the Kimadrama lack of anything same sign sign before sign after is uh, tightly tied into what are sort of the most common um, lunar yogas you look at, which is, oh, is there a planet rising after the moon or right before the moon? So basically, is there a planet that um, you know follows the moon down in the west or precedes the moon in the east, where we're getting into the, the same territory as spear bearers in the Hellenistic tradition? Right. Um, and the Kemadrama is literally the absence of anyone making way for for the moon or following after as a glorious train, um, so that's that that's kind of they all connect. Yeah, the I've I've had that the kind of running in the void lonely moon show up just a couple of times in client charts, and that idea of feeling a little isolated or disconnected or kind of like a bit more of an island um, has resonated with these individuals that. That sort of um, not having a lot of people around them, basically. So, so, yeah, and so I moon. have I have a pretty void, of course, moon. I have the Kemadrama, and it's not a full thirty degrees, but the moon doesn't make any aspects for a full day's motion before it yeah. changes sign for me, and that's my my ruler. And I've certainly spent a lot of time isolated, either literally or you know feeling isolated. Um, and so it's given me a lot to think about in terms of the cancellation because I have a benefic in the first. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's all true, but it's worked out, right? Yes. Um, like the the isolation part is, ac is accurate. It's just that the poor and miserable part um, are not necessarily accurate. Accurate, yeah. Well, the poor and part was accurate for quite some time. But for quite a long time. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I don't know if you want to go into that, but that at one point, like last fall, um, we had talked about in some ways, like you prefer that, like you prefer your isolation sometimes rather than like being stuck in a group or being at the forefront of dealing with um, social media or something like that. There's a level where that's yeah. uh, that's not something that's being imposed on you so much as it's something sometimes that's coming from within in terms of your personal preferences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I anybody who knows me knows that I, I like my alone time. Right. <laughs> that's, um, and, you know, and maybe that's like in, uh, how should we say, maybe it's something I learned to enjoy, um, you know, because I was an outsider growing up and blah, blah, blah. Um, or maybe I was an outsider growing up because I was inclined towards that. There, there are chickens and eggs in abundance. Um, but yeah, at this point, um, and well, for a long time, um, like I, I, I don't do well if I'm if I don't have enough divine isolation. Or I mean it's not always divine. Sometimes it's, you know, playing video games, but whatever it is. And I wonder if for you that's something that's more coming from within because it's the ruler of the ascendant, um, mm -hmm. you know, versus somebody else. If it was an external thing, if it was not the ruler of the ascendant, maybe it's coming from somewhere else or that sense of isolation or loneliness could be in a different part of the life or, or manifest in a different part of the chart. Yeah, if I were going to investigate um, you know, what seem like pretty maybe not full hellenistic, but pretty void moons, like moons that have 
not very much contact. I would um, look not just at general lunar significations. I would really look at how things go in the house that's ruled by the moon. Right, like that's if it I rules was, the right. seventh, does this person yes. like keep getting into relationships that kind of just don't really go anywhere, whether they want that or not? That's what you were saying, Kelly. That's I was just yeah, like oh my god, we're having a bit of a, a Mercury and Pisces moment, getting on the same wavelength. Where I was just thinking, yeah, imagine if you have a running in the void moon and it's the Lord of the Seventh, then maybe you're trying to create connection, but that could be a little bit. Uh, whether it's tricky or delays or just makes you got to work a bit harder for it. But yeah, I think to that point of like contextualize the moon according to the topics of the cancer part of the chart. And one of the things I was trying to say at the end of that episode is I don't think in terms of those three different definitions, I don't think there's one true singular definition. I think all three of those are probably relevant just in different degrees of intensity. Like The most intense, obviously, is the moon not completing any aspects in the next 30 degrees because that's the moon not completing anything in the next 2 days basically or like a 48 hour period which is a very long time and very rare so yeah that would be a super lonely moon versus the moon not completing an exact aspect in the next 24 hour period which would be in the next 12 degrees and that would be the next level of intensity and then the third and least or most frequent one after that in terms of intensity would be not completing an exact aspect until it changes signs. So there's probably something symbolically relevant for all three of them that one could take into account. It's just a matter of probably levels of intensity and how much importance you're going to attribute to that. Mm. Right. Whether whether it's going to be one of the top tier things that you're going to bother paying attention to, either during a time period or in a natal chart. And I, I think that I, I'm sure you covered this in your longer discussion, but the um, degree to which the moon is separated from its previous aspect certainly matters. If it's only like two degrees separated, then like they're still hanging out, right? Like cool. that—that's it, like it's two degrees separated, but the moon's not going to make another aspect for a long time. That's very different. Like they're still saying goodbye in the in the foyer, right? Yes. Or you know, out on the deck or porch. Um, whereas if the moon hasn't hasn't seen anybody, you know, for a day and won't see anybody for another day, that's um. That's a you know that's that's uh, how should we say a much more distinct loneliness or isolation. Mm. Yeah, and I meant to mention I forgot to mention in that episode, so this is a good opportunity to mention it that part of the reason why the void of course moon was important in ancient astrology was because in in Paulus Alexandrinus in the fourth century he um, preserved this this doctrine where the moon's next applications to planets over the course of the next thirty degrees are supposed to manifest in different parts of the life and different portions of the life depending on yes. how soon the moon will complete that aspect and then it means that that aspect will manifest at some point during the course of the life but if the moon's not applying to any planets within the next 30 degrees then it's almost as if it's not completing anything during any of those parts of the life in some way and that's why it was given often a very negative interpretation unless there were mitigations or cancellations involved mhm mm so I'll just say one more thing. Um, just you know, in my own kind of looking at um, a moon that's void by a couple definitions, and the you know, and the ruler of the ascendant. Um, you know, I've always, I've actually, uh, how should we say, I've always loved the void 
um, and different uh, spiritual practices that have void as an important part of them. Um, there's a certain, I don't know, um, uh, a little the, like it, the, I was going to say the point, the points at which uh, certain Buddhist meditative practices and um, Taoist practices intersected with the idea of the void, um, especially the idea in um, some of the Taoist stuff um, of like the void that is ripe with a creation that is not happened yet. Um, really, uh, those were important parts of some of my, I was going to say, most impactful spiritual experiences. Um, and that that void theme is is has been there in a positive way for me too. But it is there is like a very strong void theme. I just mm. um, kind of like I see the void as containing the possibility of everything rather than the negation of everything. Mm. That makes sense. Um, all right. Well, I think that's a good stopping place for that discussion. Since I know we could go on, I just want to mention a couple other really brief topics. One of them is. I was looking for a name for, I've been looking for a few years, but I decided to take this to the public to ask. I think I've got the name down, but I was looking for a name for what happens when you have a double transit of something where one planet that's transiting in the sky hits a certain planet in a natal chart, and then the same planet also mm -hmm. recreates a, a transit at the same time with the same planet in another part of the chart. So that sounds really complicated, but let me give an example. My classic example of that was George Lucas um, when he got into a car accident when he was like a teenager, when he was really young. He had this simultaneous transit where um, transiting Mars came up and conjoined his natal Venus, uh, where transiting Mars was at 11 degrees of Taurus and it hit his natal Venus at 11 Taurus. And Venus is both the ruler of his ascendant. And in the first whole sign house, and it was like a major car accident, and he was seriously injured and almost died. Um, but then simultaneously on the same day, transiting Venus came up to 25 degrees of Cancer, and it conjoined his natal Mars in the third whole sign house, and he was thrown from the car before it smashed into a tree and like crumpled, and, and his life was saved as a result of that. But as a result of this life-changing accident, he um, decided to stop racing cars. He otherwise wanted to be a race car driver up to that point, decided to go to college, and then shortly after that got in, interested in filmmaking and became a famous filmmaker and director doing the Star Wars and Indiana Jones trilogies. So I was looking for a name for that transit where you get a planet where there's like a doubling up of a similar transit between the same planets. And I saw somebody else have something like that in the past month and have a really important life-changing sort of event take place. So I was looking for a name for it to be able to refer to it in the future. And my friend Kent Bai had like thrown out a provisional name years ago of calling it like a double whammy transit, but I didn't think that that had exactly the the ring to it that I was looking for. So one of the names that I'd kicked around, and a bunch of other people also suggested this, so I think it's probably a good one to go with, but calling it maybe like a reciprocal transit because there's this doubling up of the same transit happening almost simultaneously. Uh, but what do you guys, what do you think of that? Do you have a preference? Have you seen that ever happen before where you get that, that dual sort of transit taking place at the same time? 
Oh, no, you've got oh, me I've thinking. I've definitely seen it. Um, because it's I not like, always, it doesn't always like, have to be the same aspect, but it's just the idea that the same two planets are hitting each other by transit to the natal position at the same time, sort of simultaneously, which then ends up signifying a very important day in the native's life sometimes, especially if they're activated as time lords in some way. I like where Kent's going with reciprocity. Well, because Kent, it, you know, Kent said uh, double whammy, so reciprocity oh. or reciprocal transit is just the tentative name that I'm thinking about endorsing or adopting at this point, and that's the best, yeah, best I, one I have so far unless somebody comes up with something else. Okay, yeah, I agree that's the best one so far. And okay. reciprocity also sounds it has a similar ring to it as a lot of the like older um like uh, a lot of the the older sort of uh, relationships planets have like assembly, right? Um you know like assembly, reciprocity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um adhering like it, you know it has that sort of I don't know, weird verb form. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, a, I, in the chat, a couple of people were saying mirroring or reflecting. I think maybe something on those lines as well. Like, yeah, yeah a, a mirror transit. I I hope if if it was uh, a reciprocal transit, I hope that people don't confuse it with reception, which would be a different concept. And I do worry that there might be some medieval, obscure medieval concept of reciprocity, which there could be a conflict mm -hmm. there. But I'm still kind of broadly okay going with that, unless there's a there's a, a better contender that's a just obvious alternative. Yeah, my mind wanted to go to something mutual, and then I was like, no, we can't use mutual. We'll just get confused with mutual reception. Yeah, I mean, anyway, so there's a danger, but at least I'm I'm putting it out there for people to discuss, and we'll see where where that discussion goes. But. It's it's a special kind of transit that doesn't very ha happen very often, but I've seen it come up enough times and to be an important turning point, especially when one of those planets or both is activated as a Time Lord. So, for example, in George Lucas's life, he was in a Scorpio perfection year, so that's why Mars transits both to the the natal position of Mars as well as the transiting position of Mars are more important at that time because then they're turned on. So. Um, yeah, something to think about and for people to discuss as a concept that that I would love to come up with a name for at some point in the near future. We'll get All the right. think tank on it. The think tank, yes. Um, the very last thing, and is just, and this isn't like a small discussion, but I just want to throw it out there. Uh, I had uh, T. Susan Chang on, which is a friend of yours. I know Austin that you've done podcasts mm -hmm. before. With before, mm -hmm. and we talked about whether astrology is divination and whether astrology is like tarot specifically as a form of divination, or whether there's something else to it or something more to it. Um, but that the idea that there's things in tarot that you can take from or learn from tarot that in informs you to some extent about the the nature of astrology as a phenomenon. Do you mm -hmm. both think that that's correct, or where would you go with that in terms of that question? Well, so yeah, small question, Chris. Um, yeah, just throwing a you know, two-minute discussion. Yeah, what I will say because I'm beginning to run out of words after two and a half hours is that um, there's some other things going on with astrology, but there's absolutely 
a divination layer. Um, and that divination layer is very similar to, um, uh, to, to the, to that present in tarot. Um, and as far as sort of, um, as we say, creating the, the magic circle of consultation, um, you know, where, you know, you, you and the other person or you, whoever you're sitting down to like look into what might be and into the nature of the present and the past, the like creating of that magic circle is very similar, if not identical in both tarot and astrology. Um, and you know, there are obviously there's a difference between shuffled cards and revolving planets as significators. Um, and we can get into all that, but there, there is absolutely an area of overlap where one can learn from the other. That makes sense. Yeah, I would say, and uh, just sort of briefly, is that there are elements or components or pieces within astrology that have divination at the heart of it. But I think to your point, Austin, there is more to astrology or there are additional layers in astrology than than that as well. And I know, Austin, that you did tarot and you've, al you've always done tarot and astrology, Kelly, but I don't know, did you ever do any other forms of, let's just say, broadly speaking, like divination, like tarot or anything else, or have you always just been an astrologer? Um, Very, very early on, I was um, – actually, I have to – I've always been interested – I'm just trying to think, which is why my eyes are closed. Um, I've always been interested in metaphysical, mystical type things, but once I kind of landed on astrology, I was, um, we could say, consumed or at home or immediately satisfied to the extent that I could just settle into this space. I've never um, – most of my exposure to tarot has actually come through my husband who uh, is very interested in and, and quite well-versed in the tarot. So that's only been in the last kind of 10 years or so that I have – I think he was the one who gave me my first tarot deck. I think, you know, one of the theories is somebody's supposed to give you your first tarot deck. Um, but, I mean, and I'm familiar with the layout of the deck and the cards and things like that, but I've not practiced it um, with any level of depth. I think, uh, yeah. I, I, when people often say, you know, do you do numerology or runes or tarot as well? I just say, I've really specialized in astrology and there's pros and cons to that, but that's just the way it, it's gone for me. That makes sense. And that's similar for me where I tried to pick up astrology and tarot and like one other thing really early on, but then I decided to just dedicate myself to astrology, and I decided that that was going to take a lifetime to master, and I'd rather master that more than anything else, so that's what I focused on. Yeah, I think, Chris, I love that story because I think, I mean, you're such a deep thinker. I think you and I la landed in the same place, and I just kind of felt my way there, and you, you, you were really conscious with your thinking about that, if that makes sense. Right, like intellectualizing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I didn't want to start a huge discussion there, but just wanted to get a quick little soundbite from each of you on that. I think that's good. So um, I wanted to ask you both before we wrap up, what do you have coming up uh, in terms of your events and stuff in March? Uh, Kelly, what are you doing? Oh, okay. So I do have my next live class starting Monday, March 1st. It is on the Sex Light slash the Helmsman and also or the Sex Light, sorry, the Sex Light and the Helmsman in the chart. So we're looking at 
arguably two of the more influential, impactful charts, uh, planets in a birth chart. So you can find more info about that on my website, kellysastrology.com. And yeah, that's my big thing for March. I'll be uh, supporting my students through that. I've got a TA who's going to be helping me uh, with that. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be the first kind of teaching for the year for me. So I'm excited for that. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Uh, so your website is kellysastrology.com. And uh, Austin, what do you have coming up? Well, um, got a number of structural upgrades coming up. Um, should have the uh, new version of the website up. I'll have a bunch of classes that I taught and had edited and are like ready to be for sale, but never went up. A bunch of stuff's going to go up. Um, my teaching schedule for this year is going to go up. Everything took a little longer in February than I had hoped. Um, but as the, the planets leave, um, the, the beams of the sun, so shall my works become visible again. Mm -hmm. And then Sphere and Sundry will be releasing another series, uh, towards the end of the month. Um, a series that shall not be named, but was created about a year ago, some, particularly choice a particularly choice election which uh shall also be revealed <laughs> as the planets leave the beams of the sun um and yeah so just kind of gearing up for the year that sounds amazing so your website is austincopic.com and the other one for caitlin is spheerandsundry.com mm -hmm. no no punctuation just sphere and sundry one big word.com brilliant all right. And as for myself, I'm going to be doing the podcast. I just scheduled an episode on Baran of Baghdad, who is the first uh, woman that we know of by name, who's a practitioner of astrology from the ninth century. I'm very excited because I've been wanting to do that episode for a while. So that should be coming up soon. And um, I'm going to be focusing on my course and expanding my courses. And part of what I'm doing is starting to bring on some assistance in order to help teach and expand that. I'm working on some stuff for commissioning some translations uh, to integrate into the course, and I also have a book project that I'm going to be announcing hopefully sometime in the next few weeks. Um, but the main thing is, is raising the price of the Hellenistic course in order to be able to bring more helpers and assistance to pay for that, and also so I can start doing uh, monthly Q&A sessions and put more time and energy into developing that course on ancient astrology since it seems like um, it's sort of going through a renaissance right now in terms of interest in that. And I'd like to be able to take spend more time doing a hands-on approach to that, which is something I know you guys both have like a live component in your courses, and that's very important for that, right? Important for you? Yeah. yeah really important. It, I think it really adds to the experience of learning uh, just to have some interaction. And my husband uh, is an educational expert, I guess, in and he often talks about the opportunity, like for when somebody's learning something, to be able to have some feedback or to have sort of mechanisms to gauge how they're going with the material is really helpful to uh, support their integration and their deepening of the knowledge. So yeah, Q&A is well, As a great. student, I really yeah. like to ask questions. I really like to harass whoever's teaching me something. So um, you know, just totally mirroring that, I find that other students also like to uh, harass me and ask me questions when I'm teaching. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I like the my Gemini Moon likes the uh, the back and forth. 
And and I had not done that before because I'd always just focused on perfecting pre-recorded lectures that people could access at any time and then would have lifetime access to. Whereas I think most other people follow more of a like a semester or a year-long course that has like a fixed time frame and therefore has a fixed number of live interactions. So I want to integrate that more, and that's something I'm going to be working on by getting some help, hopefully, from different um, assistants. So you can find out more about the Hellenistic Astrology course at theastrologyschool.com. And yeah, hopefully book to announce in the next few weeks. Can't talk about it yet, but I'm very excited because uh, it's in the final stages. So I'll hopefully do an episode on that very soon. All right, guys, uh, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast and for this forecast. Thanks a lot for joining me. This is a lot of fun today. Um, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, Thank, thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, thanks to our live audience who joined us of patrons. We appreciate you. And I enjoyed seeing a lot of the comments and the feedback in the live chat, as always. Um, we'll, we will be back again next month uh, in probably about four weeks from now to do the forecast for April. But in the meantime, I hope everybody has uh, good transits and has a good month. And we will see you again in a few weeks for the, the forecast next time. So good luck. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next month. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, such as Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, and Morgan McKinsey. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwak.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astral Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.